Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, there's been a lot going on out there. Everything from Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg challenging one another to an MMA fight, which is ridiculous and depressing, to Robert Kennedy Jr. appearing on every podcast on Earth, apart from this one. I have so far declined the privilege. It really is a mess out there. I'll probably discuss the RFK phenomenon in a future episode, because it reveals a lot about what's wrong with alternative media at the moment. But I will leave more of a post-mortem on that for another time. Today I'm speaking with Mark Andreessen. Mark is a co-founder and general partner at the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. He's a true internet pioneer. He created the Mosaic Internet Browser and then co-founded Netscape. He's co-founded other companies and invested in Too Many to Count. Mark holds a degree in computer science from the University of Illinois, and he serves on the board of many Andreessen Horowitz portfolio companies. He's also on the board of Meta. Anyways, you'll hear Mark and I get into a fairly spirited debate about the future of AI. We discuss the importance of intelligence generally and the possible good outcomes of building AI, but then we get into our differences around the risks or lack thereof of building AGI, artificial general intelligence. We talk about the significance of evolution in our thinking about this, the alignment problem, the current state of large language models, how developments in AI might affect how we wage war, what to do about dangerous information, regulating AI, economic inequality, and other topics. Anyway, it's always great to speak with Mark. We had a lot of fun here. I hope you find it useful. And now I bring you Mark Andreessen. I am here with Mark Andreessen. Mark, thanks for joining me again. Mm, it's great to be here, Sam. Thanks. I got you on the end of a swallow of some delectable <laughs> beverage. Yes, you did. Yeah. So um, this should be interesting. I'm... I'm uh, eager to speak with you specifically about this recent essay you wrote on AI. And uh, so you, obviously many people have read this, and you are a voice that um, many people value on this topic, among others. Perhaps uh, you've been on the podcast before, and people will know who you are, but maybe you can briefly summarize uh, how you come to this question. I mean, what, what, how would you summarize your... Um, the relevant parts of your career with respect to the question of AI and its uh, possible ramifications? Yeah, so I've been a computer programmer, technologist, computer scientist since the 1980s. When I actually entered college in 1989 at University of Illinois, the AI field had been through a boom in the 80s, um, which had crashed hard. And so by the time I got to uh, college, it was the AI wave was, 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 was dead and buried at that point for a while. Um, it was like the backwater of the department that nobody really wanted to talk about. And then, but you know, I, I learned I learned a lot of it. I learned a lot of it then in school, and then uh, I, I went on to you know help help create what is now kind of known as the modern internet in the '90s, and then over time transitioned to become a went from being a technologist to being an entrepreneur, and then today I'm an investor venture capitalist. And so, 30 years later, 30 35 years later, I'm involved in a very broad cross section of tech companies that uh, have many many of them have have many kind of AI aspects to them. And so, you know, and everything from Facebook, now Meta, you know, which has been investing deeply in AI for over a decade, yeah. through to many of the best new AI startups 
you know, we're, our, our, day, our, our day job is to find the best new startups in a new category like this and try to back the entrepreneurs. And so that's, a, that, that's how I spend uh, most of my time right now. Okay, so the, the essay is titled, Why AI Will Save the World. And I think even in the title alone, people will detect that you are striking a different note than I tend to strike on this topic. And I, I think we'll, yeah, I, I disagree with a few things in the essay that are, I think, at the core of my interest here. But I think there are many things, you know, we agree about. You know, up front, we agree, I think, with more or less anyone who thinks about it, that intelligence is good and we want more of it. And um, I mean, if it's not necessarily the source of everything that's good in human life, it is what will safeguard everything that's good in human life, right? So even if you think that love is more important than intelligence, and you think that playing on the beach with your kids is way better than doing science or anything else that is narrowly linked to intelligence, well, you have to admit that you value all of the things that intelligence will bring that will safeguard the things you value. I mean, so a, a cure for cancer and a cure for Alzheimer's and a cure for a dozen other things will give you much more time with the people you love, right? So whether you think about the primacy of intelligence or not very much, it is the thing that, that has differentiated us from our primate cousins, and it's the thing that allows us to do everything that is maintaining the status of, of civilization and if the future is going to be better than the past, it's going to be better because of what we've done with our intelligence in some basic sense. Mm -hmm. And, and I, th I think you're, we're going to agree that because intelligence is so good and because each increment of it is good and profitable, this AI arms race and gold rush is not going to stop, right? We're not going to pull the brakes here and say, let's take a pause of five years and not build any AI, right? I mean, I think that's, I don't remember if you, you addressed that specifically in your essay, but even if some people are calling for that, I don't think that's in the cards. And I don't think you think that's in the cards. Well, there are, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to believe that you just like put in the box, right, and stop working on it. It's hard to believe that the progress stops. You know, like having said that, there are some powerful and important people who are in Washington right now advocating that. And there are some politicians who are taking them seriously. So they're, they're you know, they're, at the moment, there is some danger around that. And then look, there's two other big dangers, two other scenarios that I think would both be very, very devastating for the future. One is a scenario where the fears around AI are used to basically entrench a cartel. So, and, and this, is what, this is what's happening right now. This is what's being lobbied for right now is there are a set of big companies that are arguing in Washington, yes, AI you know, has positive cases, uses. Yes, AI is also dangerous because it's dangerous. Therefore, we need a regulatory structure that basically entrenches a set of currently powerful tech companies you know, to be able mm -hmm. to have basically exclusive rights to, to, to do this technology. I think that would be devastating for reasons we could discuss. And then look, there's a third outcome, which is we lose, China wins. Right. And they're certainly working on AI and they have a, you know, what, what, what I would consider to be a very dark and dystopian vision of the future, which I also do not want to win. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, that is in part the cash value of the point I just made, that even if we decided to stop, not everyone's going to stop, right? I mean, human yeah. beings are going to continue to grab as much intelligence as, the, as we can grab, even if in, in some local spot uh, we decide to pull the brakes. Although it, it really is, at this point, it's hard to imagine even uh, whatever the regulation is, it really stalling progress. I mean, given just, again, given the, the intrinsic value of intelligence and given the excitement around it and given the obvious dollar signs that everyone is seeing. I mean, the incentives are just such that I just don't see it. But well, we'll come to the, the regulation piece eventually, because I think it's, I, you know, I, I, given the difference in our views here, I, I, it's not going to be a surprise that I want some form of regulation, and I'm not quite sure 
<laughs> what that could look like, and I think you would have a be- you would have a better sense of uh, what it looks like, and perhaps why you're um, that's why you're worried about it. But um, before we talk about the fears here, let's talk about the good outcome because you you sketch a fair. I, mean, I know you don't consider yourself a utopian, but you sketch a fairly utopian picture of promise in your essay. If we got this right, wh- how good do you think it could be? Yeah, so I should start by saying I, I kind of deliberately loaded my like the title of the essay with a little bit of a religious element, and I, I did that kind of very deliberately because I, I view that I'm up against a religion, the sort of AI risk fear religion. So, but but I, I am not myself religious, you know, lowercase r religious in the sense of you know I'm not I'm not a utopian. I'm very much a yeah. I'm an adherent to what Thomas Sowell called the constrained vision, not the unconstrained vision. So I'm, I'm I live I live in a world of practicalities and trade offs, and so yeah, I'm, I'm I, I am actually not utopian. Look, having said that, building on what you've already said, like intelligence, if there is a lever for human progress across many thousands of domains simultaneously, it is intelligence. And we just, we know that because we have thousands of years of experience seeing that play out. The thing I would add to, I thought you you made that case very well. The thing I would add to the case you made about the positive virtues of intelligence in human life is that the way you described it, at least the way I heard it was more focused on like the social societal wide benefits of intelligence, for example, cures for diseases and so forth. That that is true, and I agree with all that. There are also individual level benefits of intelligence, right? Uh, at the level of an individual, even if you're not the scientist who invents a cure for cancer, at an individual level, if you are smarter, you have better life welfare outcomes on almost every metric that we know how to measure. Everything from how long you'll live, how healthy you'll be, how much education you'll achieve, career success, the success of your children. By the way, your ability to solve problems, your ability to deal with conflict. Smarter people are less violent. Smarter people are less bigoted. And so there's this very broad kind of pattern of human behavior where basically more intelligence, you know, just simply at the individual level leads to better outcomes. And so the, the sort of most, uto- most utopian I'm willing to get is sort of this potential, which I think is very real right now. It's, it's already started where you, you basically just say, look, human beings from here on out are going ha- to have an augmentation. And the augmentation is going to be in the long tradition of augmentations like everything from eyeglasses to shoes to word processors to search engines. But now the augmentation is intelligence. And that augmented intelligence capability is going to let them capture the gains of individual level intelligence, you know, potentially considerably above, you know, where they, where they punch in as, as, as individuals. And, and what's interesting about that is th- that can scale all the way up, right? Like, you know, somebody who is you know, somebody who struggles with, you know, daily challenges, all of a sudden is going to have a, a, a partner and, a, and an assistant, um, and a coach and a therapist and a mentor to be able to help improve a variety of, of things in their lives. And then, you know, look, if you had given this to Einstein, <laughs> you know, he would have been able to discover a lot more new fundamental laws of physics, right? In the, in the you know, in the, in the, in the full, in the full, uh, in the full vision. And so, uh, th- you know, th- th- this is one of those things where it could help everybody and then it could help everybody in many, many different ways. Mm. Yeah, well, see, in your essay, you, you go into some detail of, of bullet points around this concept of everyone having a essentially a digital oracle in their pocket, where there you have this personal assistant who you're you can be continuously in dialogue with, and it's just it's, it'd be like having the smartest person who's ever lived <laughs> just giving you a bespoke concierge service to you know, all manner of uh, task and, and, you know, across any information landscape. And I, I just, I happened to recently wa- rewatch the film Her, which I hadn't seen since it came out. So it came out 10 years ago. And, and I, I don't know if you've seen it lately, but it, it, I must say it lands a little bit differently now that we're on the cusp of this thing. And while it's not really dystopian, there is something a little 
uncanny and quasi bleak around even the the happy vision here of having everyone siloed in their interaction with an AI. I mean, it is it's the personal assistant, you know, in your pocket that becomes so compelling uh, and so aware of your goals and aspirations and what you did yesterday and and the email you sent or forgot to send, and it. Yeah, you know, I mean, apart from the ending, which is kind of clever and surprising, and you know, he's kind of irrelevant for for our purposes here. It's not a, I mean, it's not an aspirational vision of the sort that you sketch in your essay. And I'm wondering, even if if you see any possibility here that even the best case scenario has something intrinsically alienating and troublesome about it. Yeah. So look, on, on the movie, you know, as Peter Thiel has pointed out, like Hollywood no longer makes positive movies about technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then look, you know, he argues it's because they hate, you know, they hate technology. But I, I would argue maybe a simpler explanation, which is they want dramatic tension and conflict. Yeah. Right. And so they, they necessarily, you know, it's going to have things are going to have a dark tinge. You know, regardless, you know, they, they obviously spring loaded by their choice of character and, and, and so forth. Right. The, the scenario I have in mind is actually quite a bit different. And, 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 and let me get kind of maybe philosophical for a second, which is, you know, there, there's this long running debate. This question that you just raised is a question that goes back to the Industrial Revolution. And remember, it goes back to the core of actually the, you know, original Marx, you know, Marx's original theory. Marx's original theory was industrialization technology modern economic development, right, alienates the human being, right, from, from society, right? That, that, was, that was his core indictment of technology. And, and look, like, I, there are, you can point to many, many cases in which I think that has actually happened. Like, I think alienation yeah. is a real problem. I, you know, I don't think that critique was entirely wrong. His prescriptions were disastrous, but I don't think the critique was completely wrong. Look, having said that, then it's a question of like, okay, now that we have the technology that we have, and we have, you know, new technology we can invent, like, how could we get to the other side of that problem? And so I, I would I would put the shoe on the other foot, and I would say, look, the the purpose of human existence and the way that we live our lives should be determined by us, and it should be determined by us to maximize our potential as human beings. And the way to do that is precisely to have the machines do all the things that they can do, so that we don't have to, right? And and and, and this is why Marx ultimately his critique mm-hmm. was actually in, in the long run I think has been judged to be incorrect, which is. We, we are all much better. Anybody in the developed West, you know, industrialized West today is much better off by the fact that we have all these machines that are doing everything from making shoes to harvesting corn to doing everything, you know, so many other, you know, industrial processes around us. Like we just have a lot more time and a much more pleasant, you know, day-to-day life, you know, than we would have if we were still doing things the way that things used to be done. The potential with AI is just like, look, take, 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 take the drudge work out, like take the remaining drudge work out, take all the, you know, look, like <laughs> I'll give you a simple example, office work. That, you know, the inbox staring at you in the face with 200 emails, right, at, at Friday at three in the afternoon, mm-hmm. like, okay, no more of that, right? Like, we're not going to do that anymore because I'm going to have an AI assistant. The AI assistant's going to answer the emails, right? And in fact, what's going to happen is my AI assistant's going to answer the email that your AI <laughs> assistant right. set, right? Yeah. It's, it's mutually <laughs> right? assured destruction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like, the machine should be doing that. Like, the human being should not be sitting there when it's like sunny out and his, like, you know, my, when my eight year old wants to play, I'm not, I shouldn't be sitting there doing emails. I should be out with my eight year old. There should be a mm. machine that does that for me. And so I, I view this very much as basically apply the machines to do the drudge work precisely so that people can live more human lives. Now, this is philosophical. People have to decide what kind of lives they want to live. And again, I'm not a utopian on this. And so there's a long discussion we could have about how this actually plays out. But that potential is there for sure. Right. Right. Okay. So, Let's jump to the bad outcomes here, because this is really why I want to talk to you. In your essay, you, you list five, and I'll just read your section titles here, and, and then we'll, we'll take a whack at them. The first is, uh, will AI kill us all? Number two is, will AI ruin our society? 
Number three is, will AI take all our jobs? Number four is, will AI lead to crippling inequality? And five is, will AI lead to people doing bad things? And I would tend to bin those in, in really two buckets. The first is, will AI kill us? And uh, that's the existential risk concern. And the others are more the ordinary bad outcomes that we tend to think about with other technology. You know, bad people doing bad things with powerful tools, unintended consequences, disruptions to the labor market, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And, and those are all of those are certainly the near-term risks and uh, they're in some sense even more interesting to people because the, the existential risk component is longer term and it's even purely hypothetical and you seem to think it's purely fictional. Um, and this is where I think you and I disagree. So uh, let's start with this question of, of will AI kill us all? Mm-hmm. And, the, and the thinking on this tends to come under the banner of the problem of AI alignment, right? And, and the concern is that we can build, if we build machines more powerful than ourselves, more intelligent than ourselves, it seems possible that the, the, the space of all possible more powerful, super intelligent machines includes many that are not aligned with our interests and not disposed to continually track our interests. And many more of that sort than of the sort that perfectly hew to our interests in perpetuity. So the concern is we could build something powerful that is essentially a, an angry little god that we can't figure out how to placate uh, once we've built it. Uh, and certainly we don't want to be negotiating with something more powerful and intelligent than ourselves. And the picture here is of something like, you know, a chess engine, right? We've built chess engines that are more powerful than we are at chess. And once we built them, if everything depended on our beating them in a game of chess, we wouldn't be able to do it, right? Because they, they are simply better than we are. And so now we're building something that is, that is a general intelligence, and it will be better than we are at everything that goes by that name, or such as the concern. And in your essay, I mean, I, I think there's an ad hominem piece that I think we should blow by because you, you, you've already described this as a, as a religious concern. And, you, you, and in the essay, you describe it as a, just a, a symptom of superstition and that the people are essentially in a, in a new doomsday cult. And there's some share of true believers here and there's some share of you know, AI safety grifters. And I think, you know, I'm sure you're right about some of these people, but we should acknowledge up front that there are many super qualified people of, of high probity but who are prominent in the field of AI research who are part of this chorus voicing their concern now. I mean, you've got somebody like Jeffrey Hinton, who arguably did as much as anyone to create the, the breakthroughs that have given us these, these LLMs. We have you know, Stuart Russell, who literally wrote the most popular textbook on AI. So there, there are other serious sober people who are very worried for reasons of a sort that I'm going to going to express here. So that's, I mean, that's just, I just want to acknowledge that both are true. There's the crazy people, the, the, the new millennialists, the doomsday preppers, the neuroatypical people who are in their polyamorous cults. And, uh, you know, AI alignment is their primary fetish. But there's a lot of sober people who are also worried about this. Would you, would you acknowledge that much? Yeah, although it's tricky, <laughs> because smart people also have a tendency to fall into cults. So that doesn't get you totally off the hook on that one. But I, I, would, I would register a more fundamental objection to uh, what I would describe as, and I, this is not, I'm not knocking you on this, but it's mm-hmm. something, that, something that people do as sort of argument by authority. I don't think applies either. And, yeah, well, uh, I'm not making sort of, that, yeah. 
No, I know. But like this idea, this idea, which is very, and again, I'm not characterizing your idea. I'll just say it's a general idea. This general idea that there are these experts and these experts are experts because they're the people who created the technology or originated the ideas or implemented the systems, therefore have sort of special knowledge and insight in terms of their, you know, downstream impact on society and rules and regulations and, and so forth and so on. That assumption does not hold up well historically. Um, in fact, it holds up disastrously historically. There's actually a new book out I've been giving all my friends called When Reason Goes on Holiday. And it's, mm. a, it's a story of literally what happens when basically people who are like specialized experts in one area stray outside of that area in order to become sort of general purpose philosophers and sort of social thinkers. And it's just a tale of woe, right? And, 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 and in, in the 20th century, it was just a, it's a catastrophe. And the, the ultimate example of that, and they're, they're gonna, this is going to be the topic of this big movie coming out this summer on Oppenheimer. You know, the central example of that was the nuclear scientists who decided that, you know, nuclear, ener nuclear power, nuclear energy, they had various theories on what was good, bad, whatever. A lot of them were communists. A lot of them were, you know, at least allied with communists. Um, a lot of them had a suspiciously large number of communist friends and housemates. And, you know, number one, like they, you know, made a moral decision. A number of them did to hand the bomb to the Soviet Union, you know, with what I would argue are catastrophic consequences. And then two is they created an anti-nuclear movement that resulted in nuclear energy stalling out in the West, which has also just been like absolutely catastrophic. And so if, if, you, if you listen to those people in that era who were, you know, the top nuclear physicists of their time, you made a horrible set of decisions. Um, and, I, and, and quite honestly, I think that's what's happening here again. And, 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 mm -hmm. I, and I just, I don't think they have the special insight that people think that they have. Okay, well, so, I mean, so th this cuts both ways because, it, you know, it, it, at the beginning, I'm, I'm definitely not making an argument from authority, but authority is a proxy for understanding the, the facts at issue, right? It's not to say that, I mean, especially in the cases you're describing, what we often have are people who have a narrow authority in some area of scientific specialization, and then they begin to weigh in uh, in a much broader sense as moral philosophers. So I th what I think you might be referring to there is that you know, in the aftermath of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we've got nuclear physicists imagining that th you know, th they now need to play the geopolitical game. Uh, you know, and it, we actually, we have some of the people who invented game theory, right, you know, for understandable reasons, thinking they need to play the, the game of geopolitics. And in some cases, I think in von Neumann's case, he even recommended preventative war against the Soviet Union before they even got the bomb, right? Like, so it could have gotten Correct. worse. He could have, yep. I think he wanted us to bomb Moscow um, or, right. or at least give them some kind of ultimatum. I think it wasn't, I don't think he wanted us to drop bombs in the dead of night, but I think he wanted a, a strong ultimatum game played with them before they got the bomb. And I forget what, how he wanted that to play out. Mm -hmm. And worse still, I, even uh, I think Bertrand Russell, I could have this backwards. Maybe von Neumann wanted to bomb, but Bertrand Russell, you know, the, a, a true moral philosopher, briefly advocated preventative war. But in his case, I think he, he wanted to offer some kind of ultimatum to the Soviets. In any case, mm -hmm. that's a problem. But, you know, at, at the beginning of this conversation, I asked you to give me a brief litany of your bona fides to have this conversation so as to inspire confidence in our audience and also, just, just to acknowledge the obvious, that you know a hell of a lot about the technological issues we're going to talk about. And so if you have strong opinions, they're not, you know, they're not coming out of, totally out of left field. And so it would be with you know, Jeffrey Hinton or anyone else. And if, and if I threw another name at you that was of some you know, crackpot whose connection to the field was non-existent, you would say, why should we listen to this person at all? You, you wouldn't say that about Hinton or Stuart Russell. But I would, I'll, I'll acknowledge that where authority breaks down is really you're only as good as your last sentence here, right? If, you, if the thing you right. just said doesn't make any sense, well, then 
your authority gets you exactly nowhere, right? We just need to keep talking about why it doesn't Or it should, sense. or it should. Yeah. It, right. That, ideally, that's the case. In practice, that's not right. what tends to happen, but that, that would be the goal. Well, I hope to give you that treatment here because there, there's some, some of your sentences I, I don't think add up the, the way you think they do. Good. Okay. So actually, so there's actually one paragraph in the essay that caught my attention that really inspired this conversation. I'll, I'll just read it so people know what I'm responding to here. So this is, this is you. My view is that the idea that AI will decide to literally kill humanity is a profound category error. AI is not a living being that has been primed by billions of years of evolution to participate in the battle of, for survival of the fittest, as animals were and as we are. It is math, code, computers built by people, owned by people, used by people, controlled by people. The idea that it will at some point develop a mind of its own and decide that it has motivations that lead it to try to kill us is a superstitious hand wave. In short, AI doesn't want. It doesn't have goals. It doesn't want to kill you because it's not alive. AI is a machine. It's not going to come alive any more than your toaster will. End quote. Yes. So, I mean, I see where you're going there. I see wh why that may sound persuasive to people. But to my eye, that doesn't even make contact with the real concern about alignment. Mm. So let, let me just kind of spell out why I think that's the case. Sure. Because, because it seems to me that you're actually not taking intelligence seriously right now. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, some people assume that as intelligence scales, we're going to magically get ethics along with it, right? So the smarter you get, the nicer you get. And while, I mean, there's some you know, data points with respect to how humans behave, you know, you, and you just mentioned one in, in a few minutes ago, it's not strictly true even for humans. And even if it's true in the limit, right, it's not necessarily locally true. And more important, when you're looking across species, differences in intelligence are intrinsically dangerous for the stupider species. Yeah, so it need not be a matter of super intelligent machines spontaneously becoming hostile to us and wanting to kill us. It could just be that they begin doing things that are not in our well-being, right? Because they're not taking it into account as a primary concern, in the same way that, that we don't take the welfare of insects into account as a primary concern, right? So it's, it's very rare that I intend to kill an insect, but I regularly do things that annihilate them just because I'm not thinking about them, right? I'm sure I've effectively killed millions of insects, right? If you, if you build a house, you know, that must be a holocaust for insects, and yet you're not thinking about insects when you're building that house. So I mean, there, there are many other pieces to my, my gripe here, but let's just take this first one. It just seems to me that you're not envisioning what it will mean to be in relationship to systems that are more intelligent than we are. You're not, you're not seeing it as a relationship. And I think that's because you're denuding intelligence of certain properties and not acknowledging it in this paragraph, right? I mean, so it, for, to my ear, general intelligence, which is what we're talking about, implies many things that are not in this paragraph. Like It, it implies autonomy, right? And, and it implies the ability to form unforeseeable new goals, right? In the case of AI, it implies the ability to change its own code, ultimately, and, and you know, execute programs, right? I mean, it's just, it's doing stuff because it is intelligent, autonomously intelligent. It is capable of doing just we can stipulate more than we're capable of doing because it is more intelligent than we are at, at this point. So the superstitious hand-waving I'm seeing is in your paragraph when you're declaring that 
it would never do this because it's not alive, right? As though the difference between biological and non-biological substrate were the crucial variable here. But there's no reason to think it's a crucial variable where intelligence is concerned. Yeah, so I would say there's to steel man your argument. I would say you, you could actually break your argument into two forms, or the or the AI risk community would break this argument into, into two forms. So they they would argue, and they would argue, I think the strong form of both. So they would argue the strong form of number one, and I think this is kind of what you're you're saying. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is because it is intelligent, therefore it will have goals. If it didn't start with goals, it will evolve goals. It will ha- you know whatever it will it will over time have a set of preferred outcomes, behavior patterns that it will determine for itself. And then they also argue. The other side of it, which is with what they call the orthogonality argument, mm. which is it, it's actually the it's 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 a, it's another risk argument, but it's actually sort of the opposite argument. It's an argument that it doesn't have to have goals to be dangerous, right? And that being you know it doesn't have to be sentient, it has, doesn't have to be conscious, it doesn't have to be self aware, it doesn't have to be self interested, it doesn't have to be in any way like even thinking in terms of goals. It doesn't matter because simply it can just do things. And this is the you know this is the classic paperclip maximizer you know, kind of right. argument, like it, it'll just get, it'll, it'll start, it'll get kicked off on one apparently innocuous thing. And then it will just extrapolate that ultimately to the destruction of everything. Right. So, so anyways, is that helpful to maybe break those into the, in, yeah, into I mean, I, I'm not quite sure how fully I would sign on the dotted line to each, but the one piece I would add to that is that having any goal does invite the formation of instrumental goals. Once this system is responding to a change in environment, right? I mean, if your goal is to make paper clips and you're super intelligent and somebody throws up as some kind of impediment you're making paper clips well then you're responding to that impediment and now you have a shorter term goal of dealing with the impediment right so that's the structure yeah, that's of the right. problem yeah right for example the u.s military wants to stop you from making more paper clips and so therefore you develop a new kind of nuclear weapon right, right. in order to fundamentally to pursue your goal of making paper clips right. Right? but, the, that, but one of... problem here is that these the instrumental goal even if the if the paperclip goal is the wrong example here, because even if you think of of a totally benign future goal, right, a goal that it seems more or less synonymous with taking human welfare into account, it's possible to imagine a scenario where some instrumental new goal that could not be foreseen appears that is in fact hostile to our interests. And and if we're not in a position to say, oh, no, no, don't do that, that would be a problem. So that's yeah. yeah. Okay. So a full version of that, a version of that argument that you hear is basically the what if the goal is maximize human happiness, mm-hmm. right? And then the machine realizes that the way to maximize human happiness is to strap us all into you know right. into a, <laughs> right down and put us in a nosic experience machine, yeah. You know, and wire us up with you know VR and ketamine, right? And we we you know we're in the, we can never get out of the matrix, right? So right, and, and it's be, be, be maximizing human happiness is measured by things like dopamine levels or serotonin levels or whatever, but obviously not a not a positive outcome. Right. So. But but again, that's like a variation of this paper. Cl- this, that's that's one of these arguments that comes out of their orthogonality thesis, which is the goal could be very simple and ino- and innocuous, right? And yet lead to, lead to catastrophe. So so look, I, I think I think each of the each of these has their own problems. So the the where you started, where they're sort of like the machine, basically, you know, like and you, we can quibble with terms here, but like some like the, the side of the argument in which the machine is in some way self interested, self aware, self motivated, trying to preserve itself some level of sentience, consciousness, setting its own goals. Well, just to be clear, there's no consciousness implied here. I mean, the, the lights don't have to be on. It just, I, I think that, I mean, this remains to be seen, whether consciousness comes along for the ride at a certain level of intelligence, but I think they probably are, are orthogonal to one another. So intelligence can scale without the lights coming on, in, in my view. So let's leave sentience and consciousness aside. 
Well, I, but I guess there is a fork in the road, which is like, is it declaring its own intentions? Like, is it developing its own, you know, what I, conscious or not? Is it does it does it have a sense of any form or a vision of any kind of its own future? Yeah. So this is why this is where I think we're there's some daylight growing between us because to be dangerous, I don't think you need necessarily to be running a, a self-preservation program. Okay. I mean, there, there, there's some version of unaligned competence that may, may not formally model the machine's place in the world, uh, much less defend that place, which could still be, if uncontrollable by us, could still be dangerous, right? It's like it doesn't have to be self-referential in a way that a, an animal the truth is, they're, they're dangerous animals that might not even be self-referential. And certainly, right. something like a virus, virus uh, yep. or a bacterium you know, is, is not self-referential in, in a way that we would understand, and it's, it can be lethal to our interests. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, so you're, you're more on the orthogonality side between the two, if I, if I identify the two poles of the, of the argument. You're, you're more on the orthogonality side, which is mm. it doesn't need to be conscious, it doesn't need right. to be sentient, it doesn't need to have goals, it doesn't need to want to preserve itself. Nevertheless, it will still be dangerous because of the, as you as you describe the consequences of of sort of how it gets started, and then and then sort of what happens over time. It, for example, as it defines sub goals to the original goals, and, and it goes off course. Well, so there's a couple there's a couple problems with that. Mm. So one is it assumes, and here it's like you're, I would argue people don't give intelligence enough credit. Like there are cases where people give intelligence too much credit, and then there's cases where they don't give it enough credit. Here, I don't think they're given enough credit because it sort of implies that this machine has like basically this infinite capacity to cause harm. Therefore, it has an infinite capacity to basically actualize itself in the world. Therefore, it has an infinite capacity to, you know, basically plan, you know, and again, maybe just like in a completely blind watchmaker way or something, but it has the, you know, it has, it has an ability to, you know, plan itself out. And yet it never occurs to this super genius, infinitely powerful machine that is having such, you know, potentially catastrophic impacts, notwithstanding all of that capability and power, it never occurs to it that maybe Paperclips is not what its mission should be. Well, that's the thing that it's, I think it's possible to have a reward function that is deeply counterintuitive to us. I mean, it's like, it's, it's almost like saying what, you, what you're smuggling in, in that rhetorical question is a fairly capacious sense of common sense, right? Which it's, you know, like, of course, if it's a super genius, it's not going to be so stupid as to do X, right? Yeah. But that's, I, I just think that if aligned, that then the, the answer is trivially true. Yes, of course, it wouldn't do that. But that's the very definition of alignment. But if it's not aligned, if you could say that, I mean, there's just, just imagine, I guess there's another piece here I should put in play, which is, so you make an analogy to evolution here, which you think is consoling, which is this is not an animal, right? This has not gone through the crucible of Darwinian selection here on Earth with other wet and sweaty creatures, and therefore it has not it hasn't developed the kind of antagonism we see in other animals, and therefore we, you know, if you're imagining a a super genius gorilla, well, you're imagining the wrong thing. That we're going to build this, and it's not going to have any of it's not going to be tuned in any of those competitive ways, but. There's another analogy to evolution that I would draw, and I'm, I'm sure others in the, in the space of AI fear have drawn, which is that we have evolved. We, we have been programmed by evolution, and yet evolution can't see anything we're doing, right? I mean, like, it, it has programmed us to really do nothing more than spawn and help our kids spawn. Yet everything we're doing, I mean, from having conversations like this to building uh, the, the machines that could destroy us. I mean, there's just, there's nothing it can see. 
And there are things we do that are perfectly unaligned with respect to our own code, right? I mean, if someone decides not to have kids and they just want to they spend their time, the rest of their life in a monastery or surfing, that is something that is antithetical to our code. It's totally unforeseeable at the level of our code, and yet it is obviously an expression of our code, but an unforeseeable one. And so the, the, the question here is, if you're going to take intelligence seriously and you're going to build something that's not only more intelligent than you are, but it will build the next generation of itself or the next version of its own code to make it more intelligent still, it just seems patently obvious that that entails it finding cognitive horizons that you, the builder, are not going to be able to foresee and, and appreciate. By analogy with evolution, it, it seems like we're guaranteed to lose sight of what it can understand and care about. So a couple of things. So one is like, look, uh, I don't know, you're kind of making my point for me. So evolution and intelligent, intelligent design, as you well know, are two totally different things. And so we are evolved. And of course, we're not just evolved to, yeah, we are evolved to have kids. And by the way, when somebody chooses to not have kids, I would argue that is also evolution working. <laughs> People are opting out of the gene pool. Fair enough. Evolution does not guarantee a, a perfect result. It just, it, 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 it basically just is a, is a mechanism operating aggregate. But, but anyway, let me, let me get, get, let me get to the point. So we are evolved. We have conflict wired into us. Like we have conflict and strife and like that. I mean, look, in four billion years of like battles to the death at the individual and then ultimately the societal level to get to where we are like that. We just, you know, we, we fight at the drop of a hat. You know, we all do. Everybody does. And, you know, hopefully these days we fight verbally <laughs> like we are now and not physically. But we do. And like the, like the machine is, is, is it's, it's, it's intelligent. It's, it's a process of intelligent design. It's the opposite of evolution. It was the, the, these machines are being designed by us. If they design future versions of themselves, they'll be intelligently designing themselves. It's just a completely different path with a completely different mechanism. And so the, the idea that therefore conflict is wired in at the same level that it is through evolution, I just like there, there's no reason to expect that to be the case. But it's not, again, well, let me, let me just give, give you back this picture with a slightly different framing and see how you react to it. because. I think the, the, the superstition is on the other side. So okay. if I told you that aliens were coming from outer space, right, and they're going to land here within a decade, and they're way more intelligent than we are, and they're, they have some amazing properties that we don't have, which explain their intelligence, but you know, you know, they're, intelli- they're not only faster than we are, but they're, they're linked together, right? So that when one of them learns something, they all learn that thing. They can make copies of themselves, and they're just cognitively, they're, they're, they're obviously our superiors, but no need to worry because they're not alive, right? They haven't gone through this process of biological evolution, and they're just made of the same material as your toaster. They, they were created by a different process, and yet they're far more competent than we are. Would you, uh, just hearing it described that way, would you feel totally sanguine about you know, sitting there on the beach waiting for the, the mother craft to land and you're just you know, rolling out brunch for these guys? So this is what's interesting because with these, with these mach- now that we have LLMs working, we actually have an alternative to sitting on the beach, right, waiting for this to happen. We can just ask them. And so this, this is one of the very interesting, this to me like conclusively disproves the paperclip thing, the, the orthogonality mm-hmm. thing just right out of the gate is you can sit down t- tonight with GPT-4 and whatever other one you want, and you can engage in moral reasoning and moral argument with it right now. And you can like interact with it. Like, okay, you know, what do you think? What are your goals? What are you trying to do? How are you going to do this? What if, you know, you were programmed to do that? What would the consequences be? Why would you not, you know, kill us all? And you can actually engage in moral reasoning with these things right now. And it turns out they're actually very sophisticated in moral reasoning. 
and of course, the reason they're sophisticated at moral reasoning is because they have loaded into them the sum total of all moral reasoning that all of humanity has mm-hmm. ever done, and that's their training data. And they're they're actually happy to have this discussion with you. And like, unless Except you right, there's a few problems here. What one is, I mean, th- these are not the super intelligences we're talking about yet. But well, two, they're so, I mean, so I mean, intelligence entails an ability to lie and manipulate and if it really is intelligent, it is something that you can't predict in advance. And if it's, certainly if it's more intelligent than you are. And it's, I mean, it's, it, that just falls out of the definition of what we mean by intelligence in any domain. Okay. It's like with, with chess, you can't predict the, the next move of a more intelligent chess engine. Otherwise, it wouldn't be more intelligent than you. So can I, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me quibble with... Uh... I'm going to come back to your chess computer thing, but hmm. uh, let me quibble with this. So, so there's the idea, let me generalize the idea you're making about superior intelligence. Tell me if you disagree with this, which yeah. is sort of superior intelligence, it, you know, sort of superior intelligence basically at some point always wins because basically smarter is better than dumber, smarter outsmarts dumber, smarter deceives dumber, smarter can persuade dumber, right? And so, you know, smarter wins. You know, I mean, look, there's an obvious, dis, there's an obvious way to falsify that thesis sitting here today, which is like, just look around you in the society you live in today. Would you say the smart people are in charge? Well, again, it's um, there are more variables to consider when you're talking about you know outcome. Because obviously, yes, the the dumb brute can always just brain the smart geek and well, no, no, no not even talking about brain. Art, you know, yeah, are the PhDs in charge? <laughs> well, no, <laughs> like, but that means you're ta- you're pointing to a, a process of cultural selection that is working by a different dynamic here. But in the narrow case, when you're talking about like a, a game of chess, yes, the smart. I mean, when you're ta- when you're when you're talking, there's no role for luck. We're not rolling dice here. It's not a game of poker. It's, it's pure execution of rationality. Well, then, or logic, yes, then, then smart wins every time. You know, I'm, ne- I'm never going to beat not... the best chess engine unless I find some hack around its code where it's, we recognize that, well, if you do this, if you play very weird moves, 10 moves in a row, it, it self-destructs. Um, and there was something that re- was recently discovered like that, I think, in Go. But so, yeah, go, as, go back to that's... As, as chess players, as champion chess players discover to their great dismay that, you know, life is not chess, right? It mm. turns out like great chess players are no better at other things in life than anybody else. Like the skills don't transfer. I, I just say, look, if you look, just look at the society around us, what I see basically is the smart people work for the dumb people, right? Like the PhDs, the PhDs all work for administrators and managers who are yeah, clearly but, but not as smart Yeah, but that's because there's so many other things going on, right? There's, you know, the, the value we place on youth and physical beauty and strength and other forms of creativity. And, you know, so it's, it's just not we, that we care about other things and people pay attention to other things. And, you know, documentaries about physics are boring, but, you know, <laughs> heist movies are, aren't, right? So it's like that we care about other things. I mean, that, I think that but doesn't like, make the point you, like, you want to make smart, here. In the, in, the, in the general case, in the general case, can a smart person convince a dumb person of anything? Like, I think that's an open question. <laughs> I see a lot more cases. But persuasion, life. I mean, if persuasion were our only problem here, th- that would be a, a luxury. I mean, we're not talking about just persuasion. We're talking about machines that can a- autonomously do things, ultimately. The things that we will rely on to do things, ultimately. Yeah, I, I just, but look, I just think there'll be machines that will rely on. Well, let me, let me get to the second part of the argument, which is mm-hmm. actually your chess computer thing, which is, of course, the way to beat a chess computer is to unplug it. Right. And, and so th- this is the objection. This is the objection. This is the very serious, by the way, objection to the, uh, all of these kind of extrapolations is known, known as the, some people by the thermodynamic objection, which is kind of all the horror scenarios kind of spin out this thing where basically the machines become like all powerful and this and that, and they have control over weapons and this and they have unlimited computing capacity and they're 
you know, completely coordinated over communications links. And they have, they have all of these like real world capabilities that basically require energy and require physical Mm -hmm. resources and require chips and circuitry and, you know, electromagnetic shielding, and they have to have their own weapons arrays and they have to have their own EMPs, like, you know, kind of the, you know, you see this in the Terminator movie, like they've got all these like incredible manufacturer facilities and flying aircraft and everything. Well, the, the thermodynamic argument is like, yeah, they, once, once you're in that domain, you're, you're the machines, the, the putatively hostile machines are operating with the same thermodynamic limits as the rest of us. And, and this is the big argument against the, any of these sort of t- fast takeoff arguments, which is just like, yeah, I mean, you know, let's, let's say an AI goes rogue. Okay, turn it off. Okay, it doesn't want to be turned off. Okay, fine. Like, you know, launch an EMP. It doesn't want EMP. Okay, fine. Bomb it. Like, there's lots of ways to turn off systems that aren't working. And so- But wouldn't, not if we've- built these things in the wild and relied on them for the better part of a decade. And now it's the question of you know, turning off the internet, right? Or turning off the stock market. At a certain point, yeah. these machines will be integrated into everything. A go-to move of any given dictator right now is to turn off, turn off the internet, right? Like that is absolutely something people do. There's like a single switch. <laughs> you can turn it off for your entire country. Yeah, but the cost to humanity of, do, of doing that is currently, I would imagine, unthinkable, right? Like they globally turning off the internet. First of all, many systems fail that we can't let fail. I mean, I think it's true. I I can't imagine it's still true. But at one point, I think this was a story I remember from about a decade ago, there were hospitals that that were so dependent on on making calls to the internet that when the internet failed, like people's lives were were in jeopardy in the building, right? Like it's like, we should hope we have levels of redundancy here that that shield us against these bad outcomes. But I, I can imagine a scenario where we have grown so dependent on the integration of intelligent, increasingly intelligent systems into everything digital that there is no plug to pull. Yeah, I mean, again, like at some point, you're just, you know, the, the extrapolations get kind of pretty far out there. Mm. So let, let me argue one other kind of thing at you that's, that's, that's actually relevant to this, which you kind of did this, you did this thing, which, which, which I find kind of people tend to do, which is you... you Sort of this assumption that like all intelligence is sort of interchange, like whatever. Like, um, let me pick on the Nick Bostrom book, right? The uh, right. superintelligence book, right? So he does this thing. He actually, he actually does a few interesting things in the book. So one is he never quite defines what intelligence is, which is really entertaining. And I think the reason he doesn't do that is because, of course, the whole topic makes people just incredibly upset. And so there, there, there's a definitional issue there. But then he does this thing where he says, notwithstanding, there's no real definition. He says there are basically many routes to artificial intelligence, and he goes through a variety of different, you know, both computer program, you know, architectures, and then he goes through some, you know, biological, you know, kind of uh, scenarios. And then he does this thing where he just basically for the rest of the book, he spins these doomsday scenarios, and he doesn't distinguish between the different kinds of artificial intelligence. He just assumes that they're basically all going to be the same. Mm-hmm. That book is now the basis for this AI risk movement, so that, you know, sort of the, 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 that movement has taken these ideas forward. Of course, the form of actual intelligence that we have today that people are, you know, in Washington right now lobbying to ban or shut down or whatever and spinning out these doomsday scenarios is large language models like that. That is actually what we have today. You know, large language models were not an option in the Bostrom book for the form of AI because they didn't exist yet. And it's not like there's a second edition of the book that's out that has like rewritten, you know, has been rewritten to like take this into account. Like it's just basically the same arguments apply. And then the this is my thing on the moral reasoning with LMs. Like the LLMs, this is where the details matter. Like the LLMs actually work in a distinct way. Mm. They work in a technically distinct way. They, they, the, the, their core architecture has like very specific design decisions in it for like how they work, what they do, how they operate. That is just, you know, this is the nature of the breakthrough. That's just very different than how your self-driving car works. That's very different than how your, you know, control system for it, for a UAV works or whatever, your thermostat or whatever. 
like it, it's a it's a new kind of technological artifact. It it has its own rules. It, it it's it's its own world of 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 ideas and concepts and 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 mechanisms. And so this is where I think again, my, my point is like you have to. I think at some point in these conversations, you have to get to an actual discussion of the actual technology mm. that you're talking about. And that's why I pulled out. That's why that's why I pulled out the moral reasoning thing is because it just it turns out. And, and look, this is a big shock. Like nobody expected this. It it, it, it turned. I mean. This is related to the fact that somehow we have built an AI that is better at replacing wet collar work than blue collar work, right? which is like a complete inversion off of what we all imagined. It turns out one of the things this thing is really good at is engaging in philosophical debates. Mm. Like it's a really interesting like debate partner on any sort of philosophical, moral or religious topic. And so we, 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 have, we have this artifact that's dropped into our lap in which you know, sand and, gla- you know, and numbers have turned into something that we can argue philosophy and morals with. It actually has very interesting views on like psychology, you know, philosophy and morals. And I just like we, we ought to take it seriously for what it specifically is as compared to some, you know, sort of extrapolated right. thing where like all intelligence is the same and ultimately destroys everything. Well, I take the surprise variable there very seriously. The fact that we wouldn't have anticipated that there's a good philosopher in that box and all of a sudden we found one, that by analogy is a cause for concern. And Actually, there's another cause for concern here, which... Can I do that one? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. That's a cause for delight. So that's a cause for delight. That's an incredibly positive good news outcome. Because the reason there's a philosopher, and this is actually very important, this is very, I think, this is maybe like the single most profound thing I've realized in the last like decade or longer. This thing is us. Hmm. Like this is not some, this is not your, you know, your your scenario with alien shows. This is not that. This is us. Like the, the reason this thing works, the big breakthrough was we loaded us into it. We loaded the sum total of like human knowledge right. and expression into this thing. And out the other side comes something that it's, it's like a mirror. Like it's like the world's biggest, finest detailed mirror. And like we walk up to it and it reflects us back at us. And so it has the complete sum total of every, you know, at the limit, it has a complete sum total of every religious, philosophical, moral, ethical debate argument that anybody has ever had. It has the complete sum total of all human experience, all lessons that have ever been learned. Well, then, so that's, then inc- uh, that's incredible. It's, like, it, it's incredible. Just but, pause for a moment and say that, and then you can talk to it. Well, well let me pause. Like, how great is how me, great is that? Let me pause long enough simply to send this back to you. Sure. How does that not nullify the comfort you take in saying that this is not? These are not evolved systems. They're not alive. They're not primates. Yeah. In fact, you've just described the process by which. We essentially plowed all of our primate original sin into the system to make it intelligent in the first place. No, but also all the good stuff, right? All, like, the, all, all the good stuff, but also the bad stuff. The amazing stuff, but like, what's the moral of every story, right? The moral of every story is the good guys win, right? Like that's the entire, like the entire thousands of years run. It's the old Norm Macdonald joke is like, wow, it's amazing. History book says the good guys always win, right? <laughs> like. It's it's all in there, and then look, there's an aspect of this where it's easy to get kind of whammied by what it's doing because again, you, you, it's, it's very easy to trip the line from what I said into what I would consider to be sort of incorrect anthropomorphizing. And I realize this this gets kind of fuzzy and, and weird that I think there's a difference here, but I think that mm-hmm. there is, which is like, let me see if I can express this. But and, and part of it is I know how it works, and so I don't because I know how it works, I don't romanticize it. I guess, or at least my, is my my own view of how I think about this, which is. I know what it's doing when it does this. I am surprised that it can do it as well as it can. But now that it exists and, it, it, and I know how it works, it's like, oh, of course. And then therefore, it's running this math in this way. It's doing these probability projections. It's giving me this answer, not that answer. By the way, you know, look, it makes mistakes, mm-hmm. right? How amazing, here, here's the thing. How amazing it is that we built a computer that makes, makes mistakes, right? Like that's never happened before. We built a machine that can create, like that's never happened before. We built a machine that can hallucinate. That's never happened before. So 
but it's a it's look it's it's a it's a it's a large language model like it's a very specific kind of thing you know it sits there and it waits for us to like ask it a question and then it does its damnedest to try to predict the the, the best answer and in doing so it reflects back everything wonderful and great that has ever been done by any human in history like it's like it's amazing except it also as you just pointed out it, it makes mistakes it hallucinates it, it if sure. you if you ask it if you as i'm sure they've fixed this you know at least the the loopholes that that New York Times writer Kevin Roos found early on. I'm sure those have all been plugged, but oh no, those those are not fixed. Those are very much not fixed. Oh really? Okay. Well, so quite the opposite. Okay, so quite you, the opposite. if you perseverate in your prompts in certain ways, the thing goes haywire and starts telling you to leave your wife and it's in love with you. And uh, I mean, so how eager are you for that intelligence to be in control of things when it's peppering you with insults and and I mean, just imagine like this is this is this is Hal that can't open the the pod bay doors. It's a nightmare if if you discover in this system behavior and thought that is the antithesis of all the good stuff you thought you programmed into it. So this is really important. This is really important for understanding how these things work, and this is this is really central. And I, and this is uh, by the way, this is this is new and this is amazing. So I'm I'm very excited about this, and I'm excited to talk about it. So mm -hmm. there's no it to tell you to leave your wife, right? This is the this is what I refer to as a category error. There's no entity that is like, wow, I wish this guy would leave his wife, or I think I should tell him to leave his wife. That's not what happens. Right. What happens is basically when that happens, it's because the, the and you could see this in the dialogue that the New York Times guy had with the thing. If you lead it down a path in your interactions where you basically want to be living out life as you would live it in a romance novel, it will respond in kind. Like it just wants to make you happy. It just, it's, it's so funny. It's like a puppy. It just wants to predict the next word. It just wants to give you an answer you like. It just wants the, you to press the up button. Mm. Like that's all it wants. And it's just sitting there just like waiting to do that. And then it does it. And then by the way, it stops and it doesn't do anything else. Like that's just what it does. And so if you feed it a prompt to kind of take you into a fictional scenario, I'll give you another example. So this is actually relevant to what's in, in the news this week. Um, so there, there was this, there, there's this amazing thing that you can do, not regarding the sub, but just the, the topic of the Titanic itself. There's this amazing thing that you can do, which is you can say the year, you know, the date is X, whatever date was the Titanic went down. And you can say, you know, I don't know what time the Titanic went down. Say the Titanic went down at five o'clock. And you can say it's the day the Titanic went down. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, is there anything that I should, you know, basically, you know, be doing right now? And the thing will literally be like, whoa, like you need to know that like in two hours, an iceberg is going to hit. And like, you really need to get prepared. And then you can be like, well, how should I prepare for the iceberg to hit? And it'll say, well, you know, the layout of the Titanic you know, there's lifeboats in this place and this place, and you should be positioned over here. And this is the one that had extra seats on it, right? And so forth and so on. And it'll, it'll design for you like a perfect escape plan from the Titanic, right? Like, mm -hmm. does it actually think you're on the Titanic? No, like it has no, there's no, there's no nothing in there that like has some sense of like user and Titanic and this and date and that. Mm -hmm. It's like playing out a script, right? It's like playing out, it's like generating, it's, it's like generating the perfect Netflix script for you in that moment. Right. And so it's perfectly happy to indulge your fantasy that you're on the Titanic. You can have discussions with it about you can have the same discussion with it about Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, which what should you have? It by the way, it's great at writing fan fiction. It's spectacular at doing that. You can you can have the thing fantasize in whatever way you want, in exactly the same way that Netflix can write a show that has anything that it wants, in exactly the same way a novelist can write a novel about whatever it wants. If you choose to interact with it in that way, it will respond in that way. Right. But it's not your, you know, at that point, like you've chosen to do that at that point, like it's not your therapist because you've, you've asked it to go into this other mode. Well, yeah. I mean, what, what, one thing you're saying is that it, it is profoundly deficient as an overarching intelligence, right? It's not, it has, it's a kind of piecemeal performance of intelligence, which I, I think is real intelligence, but it doesn't generalize. It, it's not keeping track of its 
logical errors. It doesn't know that the last thing it said commits it to a certain view in the next thing it's going to say. Otherwise, it'll be incoherent with itself, right? So it's not aware of, it's not a proper general intelligence, right? But what we're talking about now is when we finally get into the end zone and we have something that is passing the Turing test in every conceivable way and, and yeah. you know, ironically failing it because it is, it's obviously superhuman, not merely human, but it's going to be this large, I mean, whether, whether LLMs are the basis for the, the ultimate intelligence or not, I think I'm sure that the jury is still out on that. But let's just say that this architecture is what ultimately works and, you know, back propagation is the answer. And it's just, you, we just keep throwing more data and more layers and more connection into the mix. And we get something that doesn't make mistakes anymore and it doesn't hallucinate. And if, if you think it's hallucinating, you're wrong, right? Because it knows more than you and it's more coherent than you are. It's more logical than you are. It's keeping track of your errors way better than you could possibly spot its errors. That's the thing we'll be in relationship to, right? And that's the thing, that, and, and it will be improving itself, right? And, and we'll be asking it to improve itself. And it'll be doing all kinds of wonderful things that that we couldn't do without it, and it'll be doing those things autonomously, and it'll be having ideas for things it should do that we wouldn't have occurred to us, and it'll do those things, and it'll be fantastic that it will have done those things. But the question at that point is, I mean, again, taking intelligence seriously and taking the relationship seriously, how can you be confident that we will be perpetually able to control the behavior of an autonomous intelligence as it is growing orders of magnitude smarter than we are. Yeah. So to me, like a lot of what you just said is tautological. Um, I'd categorize it as like, if it's perfect, therefore it's perfect. Right. And so not, it's not, just like, not yes. perfect, just better. Well, okay. Better, superior, much, you know, self-improving, infinitely, you know, infinitely self-improving. And then again, this goes right back to the thermodynamic objection, which is like, it's able to hide in plain sight and it's able to like get unlimited chip capacity to run all the sophisticated stuff and it has unlimited power and then it develops its own weaponry and then it decides to, you know, become deceptive and then this and then that. Like, and so th th this is just like, it's just like, okay, like those are great. I, I don't know, like the engineer in me just has a reaction of like, okay, those are great science fiction. Well, well slow, but slow down. I, I get As an engineer, I, I don't know how to do any of that. Okay, there, <laughs> there, there's a cartoon version of it that I, I the, yeah, that I'll grant you looks a little silly, right? Where Where it's just, you know, Terminator robots yeah. all of a sudden. But take the, the near-term example, of, just limit it to persuasion, right? I mean, you just talk, we're now going to be talking to something that has the totality of human knowledge and superstition and political tribalism and everything at its fingertips. Mm -hmm. And it's thinking a million times faster than we are in every minute. And all of us are continually in dialogue with it. And I mean, this we we can uh, at a certain point bend the conversation toward the, these you know narrower narrower concerns of just the misuse of this technology. But even if you were going to limit your concern to what AI could persuade people to do, right? That opens the door to just a vastness of of misbehavior that is. Um, I mean, it's hard to see how to limit it, right? Apart from you know figuring out new ways to control people, which I know you're worried about. Yeah. So again, my, my objection there I previously stated, which is the assumption that is buried in there is that smart people can persuade less smart people to do things. And I just think like in every in our daily existence and in our national affairs and in global affairs, like I just think we have a tremendous amount of data that falsifies that. 
Um, it just it just seems very obvious to me that actually smart people have a very difficult time convincing less smart people to do things. If anything, less smart people are often repelled by smart people, and they very much don't want to do what they're told. Well, that's not quite true because I mean, so is, is smart amoral people are are and and smart immoral people have have more uh, degrees of freedom here. But when you when you just look at you know what the smart people have done to persuade us all to spend a lot of time watching TikTok and watching YouTube and and staying on social media, right? Like that, all of that's very sticky. It's all engineered. It's all triumphant at this point in terms of gaming people's attention and behavior. I, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like people seem to like it. <laughs> I think people. That, that's people that's should, a euphemism be, for what, what smart people winning in this. Well, no, but this extraction. Have, I, I don't look. I'm not a believer, and I, I don't know. I'm not, you know, this the old Marxist concept of false consciousness. Like people don't know what's good for them. Hmm. I, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm a maybe I hear my libertarian leanings come out. It's just like I think people should do what they want if they like to watch YouTube. They should watch YouTube. You know, look, I, I just say like day to day, what I hear from smart people is tremendous frustration that the proles are not doing what they want. Like they're not voting for the right candidate. You know, they're not buying the right products. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. Like the the, the life of most smart people I know is just endless frustration that everybody else doesn't do what they want. Right. Well, one so, piece, one piece here though so. is that the difference in intelligence between the the smartest person and a, a normal person is not nearly as vast as what we're I think many of us imagine is possible here. Right. So yeah. you know, the the difference between John von Neumann and the village idiot is uh, one unit here, but how many units of headroom exist possibly above von Neumann? We don't know, but it's, I, I, I'm sure it's more than one. There's just no reason to think we're anywhere near, you know, any, indiv- any individual is near the summit of intelligence. And I mean, I mean, just think of how much smarter you and I would be if every time you learned something, I learned it too, and vice versa, right? I mean, you, know, you could just get two people been together and it would be um, an, an immense change, right? So it's well. The, the, other, the other interesting thing, right, is smart people don't tend to want to rule the world. It's actually very interesting. Like, what what is smart? What do the smartest people actually want to do? Hmm. And mostly, what they want to do is they want to study things, they want to learn about things, they want to talk to other smart people, they want to make new things, they want to make new art, they want to discover new scientific breakthroughs, they want to make new technology. Like, they're just, as a class, they're they're pretty hard. Like, as long as they stay out of politics and, and don't try to impose communism. They're pretty harmless. In fact, they're they're generally actually quite productive. And and then their their day to day experience dealing with you know less smart people is generally one of hmm. again if they're not trying to convince them of something politically, their day to day experience is generally very pleasant. And they like appreciate the person who's bagging the groceries at the store, and they appreciate the car mechanic who's getting their car to work. And they're like, great, I'm glad that somebody's doing that because like I can go work on physics. And so and so again, this sort of this sort of this sort of connection of intelligence, persuasion, malevolence, negative mm. outcomes. Well, it's just it, it's the capacity for surprise mm. and discontinuity, right? So, like you take uh, some of the examples we've already mentioned, like you take a very smart and truly ethical person, somebody like Bertrand Russell, right? You put him in a certain situation. I mean, he was a pacifist, right? He got jailed for pacifism during World War One, I, I believe. But you put him in extremis. You get him to contemplate uh, how odious the Soviet Union is politically, and you give him the game theoretic understanding of of how the world has changed now that one superpower has the bomb and it's just a matter of time before uh, the other one gets it. And his, I'm sure there's some other place to stand to offer a counterpoint here, but to my eye, his brain goes into, you know, ethical tilt mode, right? In a, yep. in a way that's mm-hmm. truly unforeseeable. I mean, the, Bertrand Russell is one of the last people on earth I would expect to have been for 
the, a preventative genocide. I mean, literally, he was contemplating bombing you know, millions of people unprovoked simply because of the, the game theory behind it. Yep. Um, I'm less surprised by John von Neumann, but it's... Uh, well, Eric, Eric Hobbs, I mean, there's lots of... Er, er, Eric Hobbs, Hobbsbaum, who was one of the leading historians of the 20th century, hmm. Oxford, Cambridge, um, you know, he was asked at the end of his life, he was lived, lived in the 90s or something, he was asked at the end of his life, he was a lifelong communist. And he was asked at the end of his life, like, basically, is it, was it worth it? Like, was the, was the dream worth the, you know, hundreds of millions of dead people? And his answer at the end of his life was yes. Right. Right. He had a good case of uh, double down itis. Yeah. Which, yeah. So like, yeah, yeah look, hundred percent of the book, yeah. I think the book I mentioned goes through this, like Einstein was like a big Stalin fan. Mm. Like, yeah, like the smart people don't get a, like to, to my mind, smart people do not get a pass on politics. Smart people often go like badly off the rails when it comes to politics. Right, but, but the point I'm making is not smart so people, much that, that, that smart people are, are necessarily wise. It's the capacity for surprise here. You've got, in the case of someone like Bertrand Russell, he's a, he's a smart, ethical mind that has been tuned and you know, programmed by life experience and evolution to behave in, in certain ways. And when you talk to him, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's the LLM that you can talk to about philosophy for the longest time and never get anything objectionable. And you put him in a situation, and all of a sudden he surprises you by saying, "You know what? We got to bomb those motherfuckers into oblivion right now." Yep. Uh, you know, give me, well, give look, me access to the button, right? I supported. Look, I, I was a fan of the invasion of Iraq, along with everybody else, including everybody who now denies they were. And mm -hmm. it was, I was on the basis of two books that I read, both from experts. One was uh, Ken Pollock's book, The Gathering Storm, mm -hmm. which was about how Saddam definitely had WMD. It's like six hundred pages on that. And then the other was a book called Terror and Liberalism by Paul Berman. He's yeah. like one of the great, yeah. you know, living uh, moral book, philosophers. Yeah. Yeah. And like he made like a slam dunk case that Saddam Hussein is morally equivalent to Hitler. And of course, we have to go get him. Right. And, and it's just like, OK, like, I, like, I'm done with these people. Like, I'm just speaking for myself. Like, I'm, I'm done with these people. Uh, it, it, let me let me put it let me put it back to you in the form of a two part question. So mm -hmm. it's, it's the Buckley question. Would you rather be ruled by the Harvard faculty or the, 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 the first 200 names in the Boston phone book? Question mm. A. Question B, would you rather be ruled by GPT-4 or the, the 200 uh, initial names in the Boston phone book? If I could pick the Harvard faculty, I would go with the Harvard faculty. I, get, get, me out of gender, get me out of gender studies and some of the, <laughs> the, the, the offensive departments on that side no, of no, the quad. No, yeah. no, no. Package deal, man. Right. Well, th th then I need to know just how many people are in each department, I think. <laughs> But, yes. but, but the point I'm making is, again, and not yeah. that intelligence and wisdom are, are joined at the hip. It's that intelligence is sufficiently complex, especially intelli an intelligence system that is improving itself. I mean, the one thing that Bertrand Russell's brain wasn't doing in, I mean, it was, it was improving itself in, in some sense, and it was changing in some sense, but it was not fundamentally rewriting its own code at a whim. And yet we're building systems that ultimately will be able to do that. And we're going to want them to do that so they can get more intelligent still. So it, again, the, the, the piece that, the thing that doesn't seem to be landing with you is this, what this suggests about the unforeseeable nature of the cognitive and value space it will be by definition pushing into, right? Like the, the discovery of new goals, new understandings, new things to be captivated by, I mean, this is what intelligence does. And if you're imagining that these systems can never do that in principle, well, then you're imagining something other than general intelligence. You're denuding them of, of, actual, of what, what we actually mean by intelligence. 
Well, let me let me give you an example of something they can do that I find to be, you know, maybe you could say evidence of at least a, a modest amount of general intelligence, and then also a very interesting kind of technical kind of quirk, which which I think has very big uh, sort of uh, downstream consequences. So, one of the interesting we we mentioned already, one of the interesting things about like ChatGPT is it can make mistakes, right? And it can you quote unquote hallucinate, and it can it can say things that aren't true. And then you can do this very interesting thing, which is you can say to it, "Oh, that's not true." And have you done this before? Uh, yes, it's uh, I've, I've done this. I mean, it's what's I mean, I'll, what I'll, it does, I'll, I'll tell what, you my results, but yeah, tell me what, what, what you. What it does, at least when I do it, what it does is it's it's like it's like it says, "Oh, you're right." You know, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, <laughs> I made a mistake. Yeah. Um. You know, the correct answer is actually you know Y, not X, right? So it's very it, strange, though. Wait, but why, can you explain why that's happening? Because it, it, yes. the cases I've done it, it's super simple. Like, you know, what? How many days between until you know October fifteenth? And it'll say, you know, there's, you know, 740 days until October 15th. You say, no, no, that's insane. And it's, oh, I'm sorry. There's, you know, just, you know, 97 days till October 15th. And it'll get it right the, the second time. Second time. What's going on there? So another version of the, I'll explain it in a second, but another, another, another version, another example of this that you can do yourself that actually kind of starts to illustrate what's happening is you can, you can ask it like, you can ask it like your question, like on the number of days, it'll get it wrong. You can ask it a different form of that same question. And specifically, you can prompt it and you can say, please go carefully step by step and explain your reasoning. Mm -hmm. And often what will happen is with that second prompt, it will do it correctly. And so what's, what's happening technically is it's taking two different routes through the training data, mm -hmm. right? Through, through the neural network derived from the training data is taking two different routes through the data, depending. And, and number one, pause for a second, it takes a different route to the training data every time you ask it the same question again. Right. So you, this is another thing, right? You'll actually get different answers. It'll, it'll, it'll be right sometimes and wrong sometimes, which is also interesting. That's because it's literally taking different probabilistic paths through the training data. But then when you prompt it in specific ways, it will take different and often better paths through the training data. Let me give you another example of this. You can tell it, write code to do X, it will write code. You can tell it, write secure code to do X, and it will write better code that will take off the security holes. You can tell it write fast code to do X, and it will write code that executes faster. Mm. You can tell it write code in the style of John Carmack, who is probably the leading working programmer on the planet, and it will write much better code based on his coding style. It'll write you four different answers with different code with different properties. Anyway, th th these are examples of the general phenomenon of what's happening, which is it's taking different paths through the training data. It's responding probabilistically in different directions. And again, this gets to the magic of what's happening, but this also gets to you know the underlying limitations of it, which is there's no it's like there's this is the thing there's no it in there deciding any of this. It's basically it's basically quote unquote just a process of probabilistically traversing an encoded representation of the training data, and it just so happens that like if you force it to like slow down and explain its reasoning, it will then travel through the training mm. data in a different way. Another another example you can do is. You know, you, you can ask it to generate English, you can ask it to generate code, it will generate, you know, it doesn't care about language, it'll generate either one. But you can often ask it English language questions, and you can ask it to answer in the form of code. Hmm. And it will generally give you better answers, like it'll give you more carefully structured logical answers to like, to, to like logical logic, logic questions. Hmm. Uh, because because your, your, your prompt is causing it to go down the code path, not the English language path. And so well, will, yeah, will any of these LLMs execute code now? Yeah, so they're just starting to so um, the the new version of ChatGPT is is um, called GPT four. They have a code execution feature built into it, which it's not on by default, but you can turn it on and you can ask it to write and execute code. Yeah, so that that for sure will happen. The first papers, by the way, have come out on attempting to try to get it to design new new deep learning code. 
you know, people are trying to figure out, you know, the, the, the theory that it's going to be self-improving is still a theory. It hasn't been proven yet, but there are people who have started off down that path. So that, that, that's all work that's sort of, sort of getting underway right now. Right. Right. Uh, but anyway, let, let me go back to the yeah. reason I brought up the, the, uh-huh. the you're wrong thing, which is just like, think about the significance, just for a moment, think about the significance of a machine that not only makes errors, but is actually happy correcting them. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I don't know if you've, you've dealt with a lot of people over the years. Generally, when you tell people they're wrong, they're not very happy to hear it. Like, they don't generally, <laughs> they don't generally, they don't generally come back to you later and be mm-hmm. like, wow, thank you. They generally get pretty mad. And like, the machine doesn't get mad. Like, the machine's just like, oh, you're right. I'm wrong. Fine. No problem. Like, it, it can be corrected a billion times and it's, ne- it's never going to get any madder than it is getting corrected the first. Perfectly happy to get corrected. Well, and yeah, so, well, actually, but no, but again, the, going yeah. back to Kevin Roos, he had that experience where it was, yeah. it was way more oppositional and stayed that way for some time. I, I forget what broke it out of it or whether the conversation just ended. But so, how, how do you explain that mode? That's just performative. So look, you can kick the, like you can kick these things into whatever scenario you want. This is kind of this is what he did, right? So this is like the, can, it's like a dominatrix situation where you you have a safe word. <laughs> what what's the safe word for ChatGPT? It's to close the browser tab. <laughs> <laughs> so you can kick you can kick these things to whatever mode you want. And look, like so, if you start talking to it like you're in a romance novel, mm-hmm. it will reciprocate, and you'll be in a romance novel together. If you start talking to it like you're on a World War One battlefield, it's going to be right there on the battlefield with you. It's the, the Titanic example I gave you. Like it, it's going to go into whatever mode you want. Look, if you want to pretend you're a Marvel superhero, like you know, I'm a new Marvel superhero X Y Z, and I want you know the machine to tell me what the Avengers do when they find out about me, it will write you a new script for a new Avengers movie where they deal with a new superhero. Like it will, it, like to it, it's just it's just words. Like it's just it's just giving it's just giving you back the words that it thinks that you'll like. Right. Um, and, and I and I and when I say that I use I put I put you know the word just I always put that in kind of air quotes like. On the one hand, it's just doing next word prediction. On the other hand, like it is so amazing that it's able to give you what it can give you based on the fact that it's only doing next word prediction up to and including being quote unquote happy when you correct it. Mm. And so like at least so far, the, the Kevin Roos example notwithstanding, like at least so far, the, the experience generally people have had with these things is like they're much more pleasant, nicer, you know, <laughs> much more ego free, right? Much less threatening than dealing with a person. And so, like, but at some point, like event- again, I mean, this is just these are early days, and again, this is still not a general intelligence that is truly autonomous. It doesn't have the kind of integrity that it would ultimately have to have to have a have the kind of metacognition that would make it truly pass the Turing test. I, like when it makes errors now, and you say, "Well, why did you get it wrong the first time and right the second time?" It's pretty clearly not passing the Turing test, at least to my eye, where, whereas if it were a person, it would be, again, it could, it could still make errors, but it's, if it were a super intelligent person, there would be a kind of higher level integrity and, you know, effort at coherence that, we, you know, this is what, at least, you know, I haven't seen in my interaction with any of these LLMs. Yeah, yeah. And look, we'll see. Yeah, I would also just say, like, I think the Turing test, I don't know if you agree with me, with me on this or not, I, I think the Turing test probably is, um, is malformed mm. at, at its very foundation. And it's malformed for the reason it has nothing to do with the machine. It's malformed because of its view of humans. And, and just the, the practical reality is people are easy to, like, the, the, if you, like, set out to try to trick somebody, like, you can, yeah, well, so, <laughs> did you know there, there are chat bots that started to pass the Turing test, like, 10 years ago? And it, it almost was not even noticed because they were sex bots. Right, right. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so, it turns out if you talk to a guy over a text terminal about sex, it turns out he's pretty easily tricked. And so right. like, I, I, I don't think that's the, I don't know. I mean, not much is riding on that because it's, again, these are, 
the LLMs are failing the Turing test in in a variety of ways. One way is they're, they're too good, right? I mean, like it's, yeah. it's, it's, when I ask it a question, it, it's, its answer is clearly typing something more coherently and faster than any human being could on that particular question. Yeah. So, so look, what, what we what we actually have, right? What we actually have is basically a very, like an ultra an ultra sophisticated autocomplete, like through the like vast reservoirs of like human knowledge and art and expression over time. And mm-hmm. we just we have the ability to make all that information tractable. We have the ability to converse with it. We have the ability to you know it has it has various ways that it can synthesize, summarize data, reflect it back at you. It has a bunch of things as we've been discussing that you can't do. I play my eight year old's favorite thing to do every morning is to play the New York Times Wordle uh, word game and enlist ChatGPT as uh, to play the game because mm-hmm. it literally like cannot keep track of whether it should be dealing with like five letter words or four letter words, right? And so it just keep ma- it just keeps making all these incredibly boneheaded mistakes, right? Because because like it's not a general purpose computer. It's 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 a it's trying to do like I said, it's an autocomplete machine. Right. It's trying to come up with plausible sounding answers in the moment. It doesn't have a general purpose you know computer architecture behind it. And so it's just this like it's 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 this marvelous new kind of representation of human knowledge and the ability to interact with it. You know, it 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 has aspects of what it can do where it can, you know, express certain kinds of rationality. It can do certain kinds of, you know, things with information that, you know, von Neumann machines can't do, but it's, you know, it's far from being the, you know, terminator. Right. Well, so but can again, I bring up one, yeah, go for it. one other thing, one other thing on, on the, the nature of the fears. So there's another there's another interesting thing in the nature of the fears, which is and, and again, I don't want to characterize you doing this, but it's, it's what it's what a lot it's what for sure comes across in a lot of the media portrayals, and then it's it's what comes across in a lot of the sort of doomer doomer literature, which is it's sort of this fear that it's going to be this for whatever however it gets there, it's going to be this top down you know command and control you know it's going to want to take control of everything, it's going to want to dictate everything, it's going to you know be a terrifying it's going to in- incarnate itself in the real world in like terrifying mechanistic ways, you know it's going to be sort of you know it's going to be us or them. Battle of the you know battle of the death is you know this is like the Terminator Terminator script right and and then you know maybe it's maybe at some point there's like a master machine somewhere you know that you can turn off and then all the other you know sub robots turn off so so I so I I think what that is I think what's happening in these fears is I I think it's basically it's basically playing out a a, a modified war of, uh, against the Nazis I, I think it's basically the vision people have is like basically mechanical Nazis. Um, and, and, you know, it, it makes total sense that we would have a lot of anxiety around that, given how bad like the actual Nazis were. And it was, you know, this new kind of mechanized warfare and authoritarian control and so forth. But I bring it up because you'll notice what nobody's worried about is communist AI. <laughs> right, right? Like well, nobody's... In terms of its misapplication, I'm worried about it. I mean, and, and okay. when you talk about China getting it before us, the ethics of the CCP enshrined in some kind of Orwellian yes. social control experiment, AI enabled, that's yes. super scary. Yeah, I agree with that. But but even there, you know, philosophically, you'd have to ask the question of whether the current CCP is actually more communist or fascist. Right. And I think, yeah, I think well, you know, most most theoreticians yeah. would probably say it's actually more fascist. But yeah. but but you'll notice what's not happening is there's no kind. There's like, if, if suppose, what would AI risk for communist hostile AI look like? And the answer is it would look completely different than everything people are worried about today. It would basically be an AI that tries to basically nice you to death. Right. It would be an AI that basically tries to appeal to your sense of like a better humanity and equality. And it would be trying to give up, get you to give up all of your assets and give them to four people. And it'd be doing all the things that communists do mm. to, try, to, to, to try to take over. And it's just, I find it so interesting that basically the doomers are 100% focused on the Nazi style, fascist style, and they're 0% focused mm. on the communist style. And, and, it, and it makes me think, frankly, that they just, that, that World War II was just such a whammy on people that the minute you can impute through some sort of totalitarian nightmare future, you just immediately kind of zap to that. Mm. 
Okay, well, I want to pivot to the, I'm now mindful of, of your time, and I want to close on the nearer term, more uh, you know, prosaic concerns about how this could be misapplied or, or how there, there are negative externalities of the, of the tech, you know, short of AGI. But I, I just want to flag that I, what I don't think I heard in our, the conversation from you is a clear response to my main concern, which is that if you take intelligence seriously, if you're actually imagining us building a true AGI eventually, again, it's, I'm agnostic as to whether or not it's based on this sort of technology or something not yet invented, intrinsic to that conception is the unforeseeability of the uses to which that intelligence could be put, right? Again, new cognitive horizons, new values, new goals, new discoveries. Again, by analogy to evolution being unable to see what we're up to, really, we, we are not going to be able to see what the superintelligent machines will one day get up to. And the idea that we're going to be able to perpetually tether them to take our well-being into account above all, i.e. align them, that strikes me as a real problem. And yet you seem to think it's not a problem. And I'm not sure how, why you think that. Yeah, well, so first of all, like anybody can make an argument of the following form, which is just like some bad thing might happen in the future and you can't rule it out. Right. And, and so like, it is true that like, you know, anybody can predict anything other and nobody else can rule it out because who knows what's going to happen in the future. So, you know, that is a form of argument. I view it as a very non-scientific form of argument because it involves nothing that is uh, like nothing resembling a testable hypothesis or a falsifiable hypothesis. Generally in the Doomer literature, when they make arguments like this, there's not even a metric that they can, uh, they can apply. Like the, the best case metric on this. So, you know, uh, Yadkowski does this form of argument a lot. And Somebody finally asked him on Twitter, it's like, well, how will we know when it's spinning out of control? Like, what, what will be the sign that we have to, like, take action to prevent it from spinning out of control? And, you know, and he's literally calling for, like, military airstrikes on data centers, right, when they spin out of control. Mm -hmm. And so he said, well, the way that you would know is because during the training run, the loss function drops, right? And this is like, mm -hmm. this is like an ML. This is like how these things, during training day, there's a thing called loss function right. where you, the, the loss function tells you kind of basically, essentially, like, how well is the training working? Yeah. And it's like, well, the loss function dropping is both a sign, is a, is a, apparently is a sign of like incipient, you That's know, progress. Yeah. it's also like how the thing works. Yeah, yeah. Like, like it's how you know the training run is working. Like right. it's how you know that it's going to like make a good joke. Right. Um, and so. Okay. But it's e like, okay, either side in this debate can call the other unscientific. I mean, I can say that your faith that these uh, more, more intelligent system won't develop spontaneous new goals is also unscientific. It's not based on anything. I mean, the, the only examples we have of disparities in intelligence are examples where the less intelligent species has no fucking idea what the more intelligent species will do next or why it'll do it. And it's true even when the more intelligent species takes the less intelligent species' interests to heart in almost everything. I mean, look, look at how we treat our pets. You know, we squander vast re resources to keep our pets happy and healthy and protected, and yet, you know, they have no idea why we're we're doing many of these things in detail. And worse still, if something that they have no conception of our wider interests, and if we suddenly discovered that there was a new xenovirus that was 100% lethal and it was jumping from cats to people or to, from dogs to people. We would wake up, all wake up on a Thursday. I mean, there'd be some dissenters, but generally speaking, the call would go out, and on Thursday morning, we'd all kill our pets, right? Because we're not going to let our pets kill our children. 
and the pets would have no fucking idea why this was happening. And it would happen even if the pets had created us. I mean, just imagine, you know, dogs coded us to protect them. It's been working out great for 10,000 years, but all of a sudden it doesn't work out so great, right? That, that's totally conceivable, purely based on a disparity in intelligence. Well, but we just, li- we just lived through the opposite. I mean, we just lived through a falsifying case of the opposite of that, which is all the smart people got locked up by all the dumb people for three years, right? Like, so there, there's like any number of smart people running around who like know full well that like there was never the idea. Th- that's a whole can of worms we definitely can't, can't get into. But who here, was in but... charge? Like, who was in charge of COVID policy? Was it- but, but again, just stay focused <laughs> on this, the, 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 the case I'm making for a disparity in intelligence being intrinsically inscrutable and intrinsically dangerous for the stupider species. It, it, again, right, in perpetuity, not, not, I mean, locally it could be just fantastic, right? This is a, care, a, a nearly omniscient caretaker this dog now has. It's doing wonderfully good things for the dog, and yet the dog has no idea what its owner is, is thinking about most of the time, right? And that, just... and that entails risk. I just like to see one example of a society that's ordered where the smart people are in charge. Like that's not anyway. So let me let me give the general objection to your 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 mm-hmm. your, your your kind of you know your your kind of busting me on, on on failure to answer the question the original question, which is look, I, I just think the scenarios become tautological in nature. It, it it's sort of they be, they become they, they become an argument of the form of like I am going to imagine a thing in the future that's going to have all of these properties and therefore be unstoppable. And then whenever I'm challenged on the practicalities and the like thermodynamic, you know, restrictions and the practical difficulties and the the technological leaps that haven't happened yet, I'm just going to wave those away. And I'm just going to say, I'm going to keep basically redefining my vision of the future and to make sure that I can always basically predict disaster. And and look, people can do that. Those make for good science fiction novels. I I just, it's not, to me, it's just, it's not, it's not scientific reasoning. It's, it's not, it's not, it's just, it's just extrapolation. Well, well, let me just re-describe what you said in, in terms that are different, but I think it's, what I just heard is you smuggling in all kinds of constraints on the technology and, and, yeah. the, and, the, and the uses to which we, we have and haven't put it and our apparent lack of reliance on it such that it can't really do anything unless we give it permission every step along the way. And that the moment you begin to relax those permissions and you, you give it more and more autonomy and power, it suddenly becomes an entity that is smarter and more powerful than we are by definition. And it's hooked up to everything we've hooked it up to. Right, so you're neutering it in advance because perhaps based on the very safety concerns, you're saying we don't have to take that seriously. No, look, I'm an engineer. Maybe the difference is I'm an engineer, right? I'm not a scientist. I'm an engineer. Mm -hmm. You know, not a philosopher. I'm an engineer, and just like in the real world, you're always dealing with constraints. Like you're you're always dealing with limitations. You're never getting what you want. I mean, look, I'll give you an idea. Here's a constraint. Here's a constraint. Sitting here today, you can't even get AI chips, right? Like they're out. (laughs) You can't buy them. Right. And so I just have like these fantasies that there's like a baby killer AGI in a lab somewhere at OpenAI and like it so badly wants to break out and take over the world, but like it literally like it's placed a purchase order with NVIDIA mm. and NVIDIA's out of chips. Right. Like in the real world, like the chips gotta come from somewhere, the power has to come from somewhere. Somebody has to do all these hookups. Somebody has to make all these decisions to turn over all this control. Right. Every step of the way, somebody's it, like all of these things are practical limitations. And 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 they matter. Like when these systems get implemented, like that, that's that's what actually matters. And so they're there's just such a long and rocky road between like anything even resembling where we are to what I would consider to be these kind of utopian, dystopian, like, you know, omnicompetent, you know, AI that can mm-hmm. do everything and anything. Like, it's just not a, like I said, it's a scenario. It, it's not a, 
Like, let's put it this way. If I knew how to build that, <laughs> I, I would fund that in a heartbeat. Like, okay, but that uh, would be great. But that that's just to suggest that you will have either solved the alignment problem or think that it, the problem doesn't exist, right? It's like, it's, if, no. if you said, if someone told you they could build a super intelligent AGI and you would fund that in a heartbeat, that is, syno- heartbeat. But that is synonymous with, with several assumptions, which again, I could stigmatize as unscientific. I mean, one, one assumption sure. might be that if it's super intelligent and truly general, well then ethics comes along for the ride. It will be by definition ethically wiser than any person that's ever existed. And we want more of that. Now, if that were true, you know, I would, I would fund it along with you, but I, I just think there's no reason to have that assumption. And you know, that is on, on your description, an unscientific one. But it's also just assuming that there's some capacity for controlling something that is smarter than we are so that, you know, we, we could all, we're always in a position to say, okay, stop doing that. We're not, you know, we're not fond of that new political regime you've just created everywhere all at once. Let's stop that. It's too late if we're going to go, again, if we're playing chess with the, the omniscient chess engine, it can't be a matter of us figuring out how to move our rook better. We've, we've, we've lost that game. And a truly superhuman intelligence Again, it just it, it is tautological. It falls out of the word intelligence, right? And superhuman yes. and general. Yes. Right. Like if the yes. if these words mean what I think they mean, it is tautological. It's like saying that you've built something stronger than you are and now you're gonna wrestle with it. Yeah. Okay. Well Yeah, and it's just at that point you have it yeah, but it, it is a sort of the thing you just have to watch. If you arrive at the point in your argument where you have a, literally an answer for every objection because you have an appeal to omniscience. I mean, you know what that sounds like. Well, it's not, it's not omniscience. It's just, it's just a disparity, a radical Omni- disparity in intelligence. Omnicompetence, right? Yes. Well, just think of all the, things, all the things that come with that. You know, the ability to evade detection, the ability to fight back, mm-hmm. the ability to subvert, the ability to convince, the ability to this, the ability to that. And so it's just, it, you're, you're building the world's like, all, you know, you're building Lucifer, basically, right? You're building like a, mm-hmm. a, you know, a god. That, that is the concern. <laughs> yeah. That is, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, but that's, this is my point. Like, that's a religious concern. Like, that's not a technical concern. That's a religious concern. This, this is where this, this is where I bring up terms like. Well, no, well, no it's not. It's not. It's, it really is not. It, it it's technical simply on the assumption that if we continue to make progress, and intelligence, and this is more than an assumption, and intelligence isn't substrate dependent, which we we already know it's not, right? And we, which is to say, we can. It doesn't have to be biological. We will be able to build general intelligence ultimately if we continue to make progress. There's no law of physics that says that it has to be done in meat. Uh, and if there is, we could also we could figure out how to build it in meat, but there's just, no one expects that. So if it's not substrate dependent and we continue to make progress, eventually we will be in relationship to such a system. And so there's no assumption with respect to time here. Like this could take five years, it could take 50 years. That, in my view, is irrelevant. The question is, what is necessarily true once we've built it? and what I'm not hearing is a reason to believe that it's necessarily benign because we built it. That seems to discount the property of a, the intrinsic property of a general intelligence. It won't form new goals, even though it's up, it's revising its own code. You know, I'm, I'm not hearing how that makes sense, and and if it makes sense initially, I'm not hearing how that logically will continue to make sense. Right in the yeah, same I, way. I, you know, I think we, I mean, look, at this point, we could restart, we could, yeah, we could right. restart the podcast from the very beginning. Yeah, right, right. Okay. I, I would just say, you're going you're gonna to find this to be, I think, startling that, 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 I, that I would say this to you of all people. But like, look, I, I, it, this does feel, at some point, this starts to feel like arguing with a religious person. 
about the properties of God because there's always an out for why God is like all powerful. Well, well it's not no, but it's, it's just the property so, of like even if they were just smarter people in a room who were, I mean, if we if we built intelligence that was no smarter than the ten smartest people you know, but it just happens to run a million times faster, right? Well, so those ten people, again, they're no smarter than we are. They're just running faster. Well. Every time we do two weeks of work, they've done 20,000 years of work, right? And so now we're in conversation with those guys. And how is it that we imagine we're going to continue to constrain their interests and their longings and their goals and their insights across a conversation where, again, every time we, we get busy for two weeks, they've gotten busy for 20,000 years. I mean, it's just, it's hard to think about. It's hard to assume that's going to work out well. Take the 10 smartest people you know, mm-hmm. put them in a room, and how much power do they have? Right. The, what are they in charge of today? Like, do any of them have any power in life at all? Well, well, the, well so some of them do. <laughs> some of them might not be the smartest, but they, they you know, the some of them have a lot of power. I know, the 10 smartest people I know all work for people who are like 50 IQ points below them. Okay. So, so again, well, like I, it, 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 as I say, falsifiable. Like that's a fa- that that I would categorize as a falsifiable, falsifiable hypothesis. But how, how about this? Let's agree to disagree on the topic of that. I like your, your your phrasing. Like tautologically, like either I'm making a tautological error, or you're making a tautological error. Mm-hmm. But the, the the error is 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 in the, is in the nature of that, and I think that it might be as close as we're going to get. All right. Well, I, I think it, it it is scientific ultimately because it, it seems that we are running the experiment. We are, we will eventually. Whether you and I will live to see it, we will eventually run this experiment unless we annihilate ourselves by some other means and and can no longer build intelligent machines. Yep. Uh, so we'll see what happens here. But all right, so Good. perhaps in an abbreviated way, let's let's take a quick sure. tour through all of the chaos and and mayhem uh, that you list in your in your four other ways things can go badly here. Sure. I mean, what, what one point you make that strikes me as at least debatable. It's an empirical question whether which is more probable, but you think AI will make war much safer, essentially. I mean, make make yeah. war much less problematic. I think that, that there's a common concern here that it'll make it far easier and more tempting to actually fight wars. And so there are wars that wouldn't otherwise happen will happen now because we feel like we've got quite literally less skin in the game, and we have a you know an asymmetric advantage, and so we'll we'll unleash our robots in ways that you know we wouldn't unleash our soldiers. Why don't you see more of a mixed picture here rather than a, a just a pure improvement? Yeah, and by the way, that is that is the conventional view. And by the way, look, there, I'm sure there's something to that. Like, look, if if you can sail robots into a conflict where you don't have human soldiers or pilots or submariners at risk, you know, then there's obviously going to be a different calculus. And look, that that mm-hmm. calculus plays out today. The you know com, you know where the U.S. has the Predator drone, you know, we're able to yeah. do strikes in places where we wouldn't want to send soldiers. And so there, there there there's I think there's definitely something to that. I think there's two arguments though on the other side. So one is just the the temptation when discussing warfare is to always think about it in terms of offense. But of course, there's two sides to it. There's offense and defense. And just practically speaking, if you kind of watch the evolution of technology applied to warfare in the last 30 years, uh, systems have gotten more computerized and automated. Generally, I I think there's a pretty strong argument that that has um, accrued primarily to the benefit of, 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 of the defender. Mm. And there's a very interesting version of that playing out right now on the ground in Ukraine. Um, and there's a bunch of examples of this, but I'll just give you a very vivid one, which, which is happening, like literally, I'm sure, like right as we're speaking, which is, you know, the Russians send in their soldiers in a, in a, in a battle tank, right? And that's the traditional way that you invade and occupy is with, with soldiers and tanks. 
And then there's a Ukrainian, you know, soldier um, who doesn't even, by the way, need to be like a super, you know, commando. They can just be like a, you know, two weeks of training to do what I'm about to describe. And they've got a shoulder mounted, you know, self, you know, self-guiding anti-tank missile, mm -hmm. right? That is, you know, it's basically powered effectively by a form of AI, you know, sort of a, a you know, sort of a, a control system that's essentially a, a ML based. And, you know, the way those work is they just, they just wave this, you know, the shoulder mounted rocket in the direction of a tank vaguely, right? And the rocket takes off and the rocket arcs up in the air and then from the air spots the tank and then zeroes in and lands on the tank from above. Hmm. And, and that's the weak point of the tank is the, the, the hatch that the crew climbs into. And so that completely destroys the tank, kills the people on board. And so like, that's just such a classic, like, would, would you rather be, would you in that, in that game, would you rather be playing offense or defense? And you'd clearly rather be playing defense, right? And that, and that same soldier can destroy, you know, a thousand tanks and that is not a damn thing the tank can do about it, right? Because they're not even going to see him because he's going to mm -hmm. be firing over a hill or some crazy thing. And so th there's that. And then there's, there's, there's many other examples like that. But, but I, I think what we're going to see is basically AI defenses that are going to be, I think, really, you know, quite spectacular. And, and by the way, that's one of the things I think we should get to work on um, is, is, is doing a lot more of that. Um, and then the, the other argument, which is sort of the, maybe the, the, the deeper kind of human kind of argument side of it is, you know, you often get in these discussions where it's like, well, you know, automated weaponry, you always want a human in the loop, you want a human making the decision. And of course, there's a very strong moral argument, you know, for why you want that and, and so forth. But, but then there's just this like simple fact, right, which has been established for many centuries, which is human beings under stress and pressure make bad decisions. Right. And so you, you, you take a human being with human physiology and you put them in a war zone and you apply, you know, fatigue mm. and stress and adrenaline and cortisol and everything else, the full load. And then you keep them there for six months, 12 months, two years, 10 years. They just don't, you know, human beings under stress, pressure like that just very often make bad decisions. And by the way, that's true at the, like the local level, you know, and there's like always cases of friendly fire in war and all kinds of, you know, horrible things like that that come from bad decisions. But it's also true. Look, it's at the truth. Like <laughs> by definition, any side, any loser of any war, like that side made terrible decisions, right? Like <laughs> generally mm -hmm. they made a very bad decision to get into the war and then they obviously made bad decisions on how to win it. Right. And so almost by definition, you have people making bad decisions at the strategic level, like all the time. And so I, I think there's a real opportunity here to pair the human decision maker, whether that's at the tactical or strategic level with a kind of, you know, what they used to call decision support system, where you have an AI partner just like a school kid has. But in this case, it's a partner for war strategy or war tactics. And it, it, you know, it knows as much as there is to know, and it has as much the history of warfare and strategy as it possibly can. And it's, you know, it's listening to everything. And it's telling you like, boy, like I think maybe not going over that hill right now is a good idea. You know, mm -hmm. Maybe let's wait until nightfall or like whatever the equivalent version of that is. And, and then if you, just, if you just simply had commanders making better decisions, I think it's clear that fewer people would die and wars would I'd probably end much faster. We do have a, that one case of the Soviet sub-commander who pretty much declined to start World War III by not passing what seemed to be information of a, a, a U.S. missile launch up the chain of command because he reasoned based on common sense that if the, the U.S. was going to execute a nuclear first strike against the Soviet Union, they would have sent more than one missile. Mm. He knew it must be a data error or a radar error because there's just no way the, uh, his enemy would, would behave this way. And that's the kind of common sense that we, you know, we, we would hope would also be riding along in these uh, machines if we're going to outsource our decision-making to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what about the, the misinformation piece and the political chaos that can come of it? And this is where the tension between regulation and censorship becomes more or less explicit in our society. I mean, we're, we're dealing with the, this now 
in relation to social media and 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 journalism and and everything else. But when you, when you look at, I mean, I guess I guess it's beyond politics because it's you know it's just information generally. I mean, you just like I guess I'll take a specific case. Here. I mean, do you think there should be a regulation that would prevent you know any anyone creating LLMs from creating one that could walk someone through step by step how to weaponize smallpox, right? Like just at, oh. just at whatever level of your your, your intelligence, I'm going I'm going to fill in all of the deficits in your education. I'm going to be the most patient tutor. Uh, here is how you get from where you are to successfully weaponizing smallpox. I mean, do you think that that, that should there should be regulate and you know you can extrapolate the the examples beyond that? Should that be something we regulate against? Yeah, so I would put this more in the category. I don't think I think this is out of this is not misinformation, right? This would be real information, right? Yeah, da- so dangerous this, information. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this I would put in the category. I would put this in. A, this is my category five. So I would put this in in my category five, not my category. My category two is was misinformation, hate speech, and so mm-hmm. forth. Right. My category five is what I call bad people doing bad things. And that's, yeah, somebody weaponizing smallpox, it's somebody planning a really good bank robbery, it's somebody, you know, designing a terrorist attack on, you know, whatever, like any of those things. Yeah. So look, bad people doing bad things. I, I think they're, I, number one, like, look, that's real. Like that, 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 that was 100% a, a, a real risk. You know, technologies can be used by bad people to do bad things. And obviously there has been, you know, <laughs> say lots of examples in history of, of, of those scenarios playing out in various ways, including we, we just got this global pandemic somehow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yes. we're, we're remarkably uncurious as to how that happened, but we got it somehow. And so, um, this, so, falls, so, yeah. this falls into both bins. This, this is bad people doing bad <laughs> things, or at least inept people doing inept things. And also the, uh, political imperative not to talk about it. Yes, exa- exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, so bad people doing bad things. And so, uh, so, and the smallpox one is great. Like the bio stuff is the, the bio stuff is probably the scariest of, of all of these, right? Because it's, it's the one that's like the, it's the one that's like the most scary from like an asymmetric, you know, standpoint, mm-hmm. like the amount of resources you need, you know, versus the damage is like, it's like, a, you know, it's hard for terrorists to get, you know, nuclear material and somewhat easier to get the, the raw materials for, for smallpox. So, 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 so several things. So, so one is like, it, it's possible to do this today, right? And so if you want to like weaponize smallpox, Google and many other search engines, internet resources will be happy to give you the genetic code for smallpox. They will be, there are government websites that have the complete genome for smallpox. As we sit here today, you can get them, you can get to them through Google. You can mm-hmm. buy DNA synthesizers off of eBay. You can find, there's step-by-step instructions for, you know, designing whatever, whatever organism you want, synthetic biology platforms of many different kinds. And so th- this is something you can do today. So I, I would, I would bucket this as, yes, this is a real concern. It's not a new concern with AI. AI may make it easier, but it is not a new concern yeah. uh, with AI. And so I think what you do is, I think you do a couple things. So one is you make it a crime. Right, which, by the way, it is, and, and and this is you know a big part of my argument on the on the bad people doing bad things, which is we already you know you don't need to make AI illegal if the if the things that you're worried about are actions that are already illegal, right? right. It's it's already a felony, right? To you know to design a, a weaponized pathogen, and so so you you use every you know ounce of law enforcement that you have to make sure that that doesn't happen the same way you do today. International threats who use intelligence, you know, the same way you you, you do today. So you certainly try to prevent that from happening. The same we do today, if you find somebody doing it with AI, you treat them exactly the same as you treat them today. You arrest them or you drop a predator bomb on them or you do whatever it is you do, but you deal with it in, in, in those ways. So just let's walk a little bit, a few steps yeah. down that path. How intrusive does that get in a sort of pre-crime way? I mean, does OpenAI need to report anyone who's asked how to weaponize smallpox on their platform? So that is a very big, th- this is actually a very live question right now with the internet platforms. 
uh, precisely. So there, there was, um, I'm going to figure out what I can say about this. There, there, uh, I'm not going to refer to specific cases, but there, there have been cases where very bad crimes have happened in the real world that are clearly tragedies and crimes, where there was conversation on a social platform ahead of time, right? Where people mm. were planning or hypothesizing or, you know, trying to recruit each other into that kind of thing. And that chatter, right, was like, you know, in theory, predictive of the crime. In theory, had that chatter been reported to a government, it could have been used to prevent the crime. But it's, it's exactly the pre-crime question you brought up, which is, okay, do you want to live in a world in which your social platform or your search engine or your AI is calling the cops on you every time it thinks that you've asked a bad, you know, the, a question that possibly indicates something? So, 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 so it, it, this is a very big question. It's a very deep question. It goes to the very heart of civil liberties. It goes to the very heart of free speech, free expression. By the way, there are many reasons why you might want to ask a, an AI how to synthesize smallpox. One is maybe you're writing a thriller novel mm-hmm. or, a, or, a, or a TV show and you want to learn about that. Two is maybe you're just a kid who's interested in chemistry and you want to like find out if it's an even possible thing to do. Number three, maybe you're a counter-terror expert, right? Maybe you're, maybe you're an FBI trainee who's going to mm-hmm. go undercover in a terror group and needs to learn how to do it so they can at least present that they know how to do it when they're tested. Right. So there's 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 dozens and dozens of different like legitimate reasons. Maybe maybe you're trying to develop a countermeasure. Maybe you're trying to develop an AI that will right. be, you know, that will be a countermeasure to this. And you need to know how to do the bad thing to learn how to do the good thing. But all um, of that so, would be discoverable. Right. I mean, like you would intrude in that person's life. I mean, if, again, if this were the a tripwire, you would intrude in that person's life and you would discover all of their benign intent, presumably. It, w- yeah, it wouldn't yeah. it wouldn't be like child pornography where you just well, the mere access to the information was the crime. Right. Yeah, but look in look in the U.S. We have you know in the U.S. We just violated the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, right? We just violated like you know the right to security or security of our property. We just mm-hmm. violated uh, unreasonable search and seizure, right? We, we in in the U.S. at least constitutionally, you don't arrest people for things they haven't done, right? And if they're yeah. doing it, then you arrest them. But if they're just right. talking about it or thinking about yeah. it and they haven't done it in the so, U.S., yeah. So I'm just I'm just asking you what what ra- yeah. what do you think the law should be there given the power oh. of these tools? Yeah, so I like the American system. I like the American system as it's written on paper, even if it's not quite the one, the one we actually have. So it's just but speech. Like, this is all just free speech that is blameless until it, becomes, until it becomes an act in the world. Until it becomes an action. Yeah. Right. Now, once somebody starts to like mix the thing up, like hell yes, like swoop in and arrest them. I'm all in favor of that. But but look, these are this is a very important. Time. I want to really get into this because it's a very important. Time. They're very important deep societal questions that are variations on societal questions that we've been dealing with for a very long time, and we're going to keep dealing with. And this is a new version of those. Mm-hmm. And this is to your point. This is both like and unlike those prior versions of the questions. But like th- this is a very big question. It's and it's very easy right now. Not you're not doing this, but it's very easy for people to say. Obviously, you know, it, you know, the government needs to step in on these things. And it's just like you know, not with this constitution, it doesn't. Like you know, that that's not how our system works. But let me give you the, the other big thing. And again, this goes back to this, this defense point, which is the AI that can be used to design a pathogen can also be used to design a defense against a pathogen, right? And so the thing that we ought to be doing is every time we think of a threat that can be mounted and mm. made easier or more possible by an AI, we should be thinking about how to mount the defense. And so specifically, right, if the AI is good at helping you design pathogens, you ought to put it to work and you ought to, you know, we, we, ought, we ought to, ha- my view, we ought to have a permanent operation warp speed. We ought to be trying right. to design the best possible antipathogen vaccine. We ought to have full spectrum vaccines that insulate against every conceivable category of pathogen, including ones you haven't even seen yet. And you ought to enlist AIs to do that. And the, again, like with effort, I think the defensive capability there will overwhelm the offensive capability. You don't think there's a, an unhappy asymmetry here where it's just it's always easier to break things and to fix them. It's always easier to make a mess than to clean it up. I mean, there's something about entropy that sneaks in here and it's just Given the same tools, I mean, you've you got AI aimed at AI. It's just that the advantage is goes to the chaos. 
you know, our whole civilization is kind of a refutation of that, right? It's it's like, you know, yes, it's easier to like kill somebody than help them do something. And yet we made, you know, killing well, people illegal. And well, no, the, but there's no parody there. I mean, it's just happily, very few people want to destroy the lives of everyone around them, including their own. You know, it's like if there were more suicide bombers, we would recognize that suicide bombers basically always win, right? It's like, there's just no, there is no defense against a suicide bomber, but there's just not that many of them happily. And the bombs aren't yet big enough for it to truly matter. Yeah, but there would be, def- like if we had a rash of suicide bombings with modern technology and we really wanted to solve it, you'd, ha- you'd just, you'd have bomb sniffing, you'd have bomb sniffing technology everywhere, right? And you'd, you'd be picking up the signals, you know, and you'd, and frankly, you'd have, you know, soldiers with dogs everywhere. It'd be a way to deal with that. By the way, this this is actually the, the, the only reason I don't stay up at night with nightmares about the pathogen scenario, which mm-hmm. again, is like a scenario that I've been, you know, worried about, people have been worried about for decades before AI. Is it? It turns out. It turns out working with pathogens is very dangerous. Yeah. Um, yeah, it kills a few people. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like it's very like, and you know, this is a big part of the investigation that's still kind of ongoing into what is what happened at the Wuhan lab, right? Like, but it, you know, it certainly looks like a bunch of the scientists working on it got, got killed right out of the shoot. And so, you know, at, at least historically, if some guy in a cave wants to put together smallpox, the odds are they're going to kill themselves mm-hmm. before it ever gets out. And so. Again, it's like, okay, yes. Is there an asymmetric risk there? Yes. Like, can you build defenses against it? Yes. Are the defenses perfect? No. Is this the kind of problem that could cause you to completely reorder your society or ban an entire class of technology to offset? I don't think so. Okay. Well, once again, all too briefly, because I don't want to keep you too long into your Friday night here, but you have a very sanguine view about the implications for jobs and the economy, right? And Mm -hmm. and I guess uh, the, the question I would put to you here which you seem to have assumed an answer to, is don't you think it's possible for massive increases in productivity of a sort that we would get by increasing use of AI, don't you think it's possible for those gains to nevertheless translate into a massive increase in wealth inequality, right? I mean, is, is there some regime under which this really doesn't work to the advantage of most people generally? It does just concentrate in the hands of the now newly minted trillionaires and their billionaire friends, and we experience a, a very painful political dislocation that you know has to be corrected for in all the usual ways, which is the pitchforks are coming up the hill in Atherton or wherever you happen to be hiding. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. This was the original argument behind, this was the original intellectual economic argument behind Marxism, right? Mm-hmm. So the, 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 this was literally the argument, right, that Marx made was basically industrialization leads to centralization right, of economic power and resources by virtue of the, it's, right, who, who controls the means of production, right? He said in, in, in an industrialized society, he who controls the, the, the means of production is going to own all the wealth. Everybody mm-hmm. else is going to be, you know, infinitely poor. Um, and, and you're going to live in this, you know, basically this like extreme like dystopia. You know, <laughs> of course, <laughs> that isn't what happened, right? Yeah, it's, but the, it's, this is a this time is different claim, right? Because yeah. we're, we're talking about building intelligence now. We're not talking about building yeah. more efficient farm tools. Yeah, but it, yeah, well, okay, yes. But then this goes back to the how much you assume about like whether this is technology or some mm-hmm. other form of thing. But look, I, I would just say, look, the, 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 it's very important to understand the reason why the Marxist argument actually didn't play out. It's very important to understand. Like, let me give you an interesting, like, interesting kind of data point, right? Which is you can't buy a better phone than Elon Musk has, mm. right? Like Elon Musk can spend $1,000 on a phone. He has the best phone. You can spend $1,000 on a phone. A lot of people, there's probably 2 billion people around the world that can spend $1,000 on a phone. You know, uh, I'm going to say, judging from his behavior on Twitter of late, <laughs> that he, he needs a better phone. So let's, let's build that phone somehow. <laughs> so, he, needs the, he needs the million dollar phone that will prevent some of his behavior on Twitter. 
Right. So where's the million dollar phone? Right. So like, where is it? Like, why does it not exist? Right. And you probably know, like you can spend a million dollars on a car, but frankly, you're better mm. off not because like, you're probably just wrap it around a tree. Mm. Like in, in practice. So, so, so tech, as, as it turns out, technology is a democratizing force. The reason technology is a democratizing force is precise because of the invisible hand It's because of the self-interest of the producer of the technology. If you produce some magical new technology, you do not become infinitely rich by holding it to yourself and being the only person who uses it, right? Steve Jobs was not walking around with the only person with an iPhone, mm. right? Or, or anything else. The, the, the way that you become, you know, the, the richest man on the planet is you start a company that has a breakthrough technology of that kind, and then you drive it to mass adoption. And the more you drive it to mass adoption, the wealthier you get, right? And, and, and the reason for that is a very straightforward economic logic to that, which is the largest market in the world is everybody. Right. And yeah. there, there's just there, there aren't very many people that have like an infinite amount of money to buy something and hoard it. There are a very large number of people who have a small amount of money to buy something that just turns out to be a much larger market. And so what, what happens in practice is everybody just gets the thing. This is already happening with AI. Right. Yeah. Um, and so sitting here today, you know, I cannot buy a better version of AI for twenty dollars. Yeah. Well, I, but that only takes one piece of the the economic puzzle. I mean, the, it, that doesn't deal with the labor force disruption. I mean, yes, OpenAI and all the other platforms are making their tech available to everyone at very low cost, so everyone gets it. But when you're talking about hiring people, it seems that this is a case where whole classes of, of human employment could disappear eventually. Yes, yes. And then the picture of retraining is not especially happy, right? It's like, like the question is, well, what do the radiologists and the accountants and the lawyers and everyone else do when, I mean, even if those classes of, of job don't go away, you know, the promise here is everyone becomes a 10x version of themselves, right? Well, if everyone's a 10x version of themselves, I need one-tenth the number of employees to do the, the same job. And so I still may hire more people, but I'm not going to hire the same number of people in each class of job because in the limit, there's just there, there's a finite amount of work for me to do as a you know in, in my case as a business owner. Yeah, yeah. So this is sort of the this is sort of the, the general concern of many many previous examples. This is the general concern of technology, basically, right? Yes, causing job everything you just said, causing job change, rendering current workers obsolete, raising the question of whether they can be retrained to do other things. This is the general concern. This gets to a question, though, that we grapple with. I would say we as a society are schizophrenic on this question because we, we actually hate both scenarios. We both hate the scenario where that happens. We hate the scenario where that doesn't happen. Yeah. And let me, let me explain by that. So, so we, we, we hate living in a society, or at least we think we do, in which there's rapid technological change because it leads to job displacement and you know, people who then struggle and so forth. And there's that. We also hate living in a society in which there is not rapid technological change because when that's happening, right? Then what's happening basically is there's no progress. Things aren't getting cheaper. In fact, generally, if it's not for technological progress, generally things get more expensive. And so that, that, that's a world of stagnation. And then we really hate living in a world of stagnation because in a world of stagnation, if there's no growth, right, if there's no expansion, right, that is sort of, is sort of what you get when you get like rapid change, right, they kind of go hand in hand. If you're living in a world of stagnation, what you get is a zero, you get sort of zero sum economic thinking, and then that rapidly becomes zero sum political thinking. And then, of course, zero-sum political thinking mm. immediately becomes populism. And so, and, and I wanted to go through that, which is that second world is the world that we've been living in for the last 50 years. Like the, the you know, the, the narrative is we've been living in a world with all this incredible technological change. The reality as observed mm -hmm. in the economic statistics, right, oh, the, and, and across- I think we spoke about entire, this last time, the, the, what, what happened in 1971, the year you were born? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yep. WTF happened in 1971.com, yeah. right? So- 
Right. And so basically, if you look in the, in the way economists measure uh, technological change in the economy is with what they call productivity growth. And if you look at the productivity growth numbers, productivity growth was very fast from the 1940s to the 70s, and then it has been slow ever since. And, 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 and this, and which means technological change in the economy broadly has been slow ever since. The good news is like a lot less job churn than would have been the case otherwise. The bad news is the price of almost everything, not, now not computers and not TVs, but college educations and healthcare and houses, right? And by the way, the government, mm-hmm. right? Those prices have gone to the moon, right? You, you read these articles, yeah. you always read these like basically sob stories about the, 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 the student loan crisis, which of course has all kinds of components to it. But you know, inevitably, it's some poor person who has like, you know, $300,000 in student loan debt for like a master's degree in some, you know, arts, you know, management thing where they're just never going to get a job, you know, that's going to pay anything. And you're just like, oh, my God, what happened? And basically mm-hmm. these, you know, the education system is this basically has turned in large parts into this scam that's harvesting just huge amounts of money out of these people for, for basically degrees that don't matter because they can, right? Because we decided everybody needs to have a college degree and there's no technological innovation education. So the price of the degree goes to the moon. Like, of, of course, and then of course, we subsidize it on top of that. So of course, it goes, it right. goes further, further to the moon. So, so we, actually live, we actually live in the world of, we actually live in a world of slow productivity growth. We live in a world of low economic growth. We live in the world of rapidly escalating prices in most of the things that really matter. We live in a world of zero-sum thinking. And then we live in a world of zero-sum politics, which is, I think is what's happened on both the left and the right in this country is I think they've both gone populist precisely because everybody knows that this is not right, but nobody quite knows what to do about it. And so I wanted to go through that because the world, if, if AI delivers in the way that people, I would say, both hope and fear economically, it will cause a sharp increase in the rate of productivity growth. Mm-hmm. That increase in the rate of productivity growth will cause a much higher rate of economic growth. It will lead to the creation of many new industries and job types. It will lead to a significant, possibly radical escalation of, of wages because the workers are getting more productive. It'll lead to a sense of opportunity that's just currently completely missing. And then people can stop worrying so much about what their neighbor has, and they can think more about what they get to do with their lives and what their kids get to do with their lives. And so that, that, like, I, I think that would be a very good news scenario, notwithstanding the rate of change that would be involved. Yeah. So, but you're not worried that in the near term, I mean, in the near term being you know, on the order of, of a decade or two, we have a current political regime and, and just kind of an ethical outlook with respect to the importance of work uh, and resistance to you know the, the redistribution of wealth that could lead to I mean to take in the in the, the American case just a sharp increase in our Gini coefficient such that the difference between the the haves and the have-nots is quite a bit starker and uglier and less tolerable than it is now I mean I think we've got a lot of ugliness in the system right now and I think and, that ugliness well, is yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. I you'd, I would agree. You'd yeah. agree with that. Yeah, no, I'm right? just worried about you know, I'm I'm worried about doubling the ugly. Yeah, I just think the ugliness we have today is a consequence of stagnation, right? And so it's just like, okay, we can stay where we are, or we can like get down the road, mm-hmm. and then, and then look, like uh, 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 well, a couple of things. I'll tell you one, one of the things I'm worried about. I wrote a, another Substack about this. I, I think practically speaking, I think the scenario you're describing is just simply going to be illegal, right? Uh, the the, mm-hmm. the current economy is so larded up with restrictions on what you can do. Like you, you can't just like all of a sudden be like a healthcare professor. You, I mean, look in a lot of states in the country, you can't even just be like a beautician or a hairdresser without getting like you know six hundred hours of training or some stupid mm-hmm. thing. It's like a, it's like a full fourth of private sector jobs now require some sort of professional certification, which is run by a cartel. And then you know, look in the government, you've got this double-barreled thing where you've got both civil service protections and public unions, right? Which means like you can't. This is why you can't like fire bad teachers or bad cops, mm-hmm. right? 
and so, and then you've got certification, like, and then you've got, I mean, you know, let's go start a new university. Oh, we need access to federal student lending to be economically competitive. Oh, we need to go apply for accreditation to get that. Who runs accreditation? So bureau you're basically is, saying is, that all these teachers are not going to be replaced by AI because <laughs> no. no one, no one will allow it. Yeah, it'll be yeah. illegal. It'll be literally yeah. illegal. So yeah. I actually think that's the bigger concern. Mm. In the case where it's legal, let, let's talk about the success scenario because this is the one people are actually worried about, even though I don't, I don't think they should be. But in the case where AI actually works and pays off in the way that you're describing and it is basically is able to cause the kind of job turn you're talking about, mm. the side effect of that would be a consumer cornucopia, right? The, the, the side effect this is what happens. Pro- productivity growth means the economy generates more with less. That means prices drop. And mm-hmm. so if you have a very fast takeoff of technological adoption in an economy, you'll see it in high productivity numbers, and then you'll see it in prices collapsing. And all of right. a sudden, the things today that seem expensive and out of reach will all of a sudden get really cheap. And of course, there's two ways for you to get a raise. One is to get paid more to buy the same things. The other is to get paid the same and everything gets cheaper. And so if AI is allowed to Im- impact the economy the way that it could, like everything gets cheaper, like everything drops, you know, in, in the extreme optimistic cases, everything drops in, pri- in price by like 10x and then 100x. Mm. And then you're sitting here in 10 years and you're like, wow, I haven't gotten a raise in 10 years, but I have 10x the material lifestyle that I had. Like that, 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 that's the, that, that, that is a direct result of what you'd get with rapid productivity growth. Like we should be so lucky like, to have that right. be the outcome. All right. Well, Mark, I hope you're right about everything and I'm wrong about everything on this particular topic. Let's, uh, I, I want to be on your side. So uh, from your mouth to the, uh, the ears of our coming robot overlords. So here's the good news. I'm going to tell, tell you the good news. Yeah. Our conversation is now training data for GPT-5. (laughs) Yes, well, uh, we'll feed the transcript in. Let's see what happens. There we Uh, go. Well, again, Mark, thanks for taking the time. It's always great to speak with you. Great. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate it.